As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. It's a great privilege today for OneOuter.com to speak with uh, Neil Channon, um, regular Vic Cash Game Grinder, Irish Open champion, uh, regular on the UK tournament scene, tour- tournament tables on TVs, commentary, uh, owner or certainly one of the owners of BlackBeltPoker.com. Uh, if there's anything we've missed, Neil, you can fill us in. How are you today? Uh, big loser. Donator. Mugaroo. Uh, loser on TV cash games. Uh, did he cover everything? I don't know. I'm alright. I'm not too bad. I've been playing a shitload of poker lately. Can I say shitload? Well, yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. I'll try not to swear too much. Um, no, no I'm okay. I'm doing alright. Good, good. So, um, I've been trying to get a hold of Neil for a while, and um, he's quite a busy man, obviously, with blackbeltpoker.com. And he's still a player, very much. Well, you know, thank you for mentioning the name of the site, blackbeltpoker.com. That's excellent. Oh, yeah, we'll put all the links on the site. Don't forget, <laughs> Black Belt Poker. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've hassled Neil a couple of times through Facebook for some advice a couple of years ago. And, um, actually, that was quite funny. Um, he went blackbeltpoker.com. See, I've said it again already. Excellent. Um, <laughs> They started, I think it was like a 5k free roll you did. I can't remember if it was for... Yeah, we you. did. When we very first started, we had a we had a free roll for sign-ups. I mean, not a, not a particularly original idea. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a big deal for us. I mean, if uh, Stars or somebody has a free roll, they, uh, well, obviously, uh, full tilt free rolls are not as popular as they used to be. But um, if Stars were having free rolls, they, you know, maybe it would be like a 100k or something. I, I think it's pretty hard to compete on those kind of things. But, you know, we were starting up and, and somebody advised us that uh, you really need to have a startup free roll. It's a good way of getting lots of people in. And we, we did a really good job of promoting it. And I, I went on uh, Jesse May's uh, poker radio thing a whole bunch of times talking about it. And I got quite a few famous players, including Jesse May, to play in it. Uh, Jesse May not being a particularly famous player, but you know what I mean. And um, anyway... Uh, yeah, it was a 5K, so we, you know, normal kind of poker site thing. We tried to pay as many people as possible so that everyone got some money in their account. And we had a few bounties. Uh, and Nick Persode, uh, being a fellow shareholder and founder of Backlot Poker, was one of the bounties. Uh, he came fourth in the thing, collecting some prize money. I came second, and I knocked him out. So we saved yeah. ourselves considerable longer. Uh, that yeah. was 350 people in it. I, was, I actually was like four to one heads up with the guy. And I was getting text messages from firm shareholders saying, uh, hmm. do you think you should let him win? And I was like, no way! I want to win my own free roll. That'll be so good. And then the guy bashed me up. I'll just correct you there. Hmm. Nick Prasad was eight. I was hmm. four. <laughs> you are right. He was eight. I think it's, you were fourth. I'm trying to I'm think. Fourth, who was, yeah. I'm trying to think who was third then because that was a guy called Trojan Donkey. Because I still have the screenshot. Yeah, Trojan Donkey. Adam yeah. Latimer was one of the the very first black belt uh, professionals. He was he at the time he was a brown belt. So um, I think we had a bounty on him as well, uh, and uh, I think I busted him. So that was it. You are absolutely right. There were there were five people with bounties. 
and uh, uh, three of them made the final, and I busted the other two. I think so. Um, it was a, it was a success all round, and a big money saver. The uh, the free roll budget is intact, and we, we probably just haven't used it since. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely fun, and I remember it was the first time I played on uh, black belt, and I, it was a five k free roll, and there was only. Um, two hundred and seventy-five people in it. So you well, know, it was... see, there's me boasting. I beat three hundred and sixty people. I was quite impressed by two seven five. That was hard yeah. work. Two seven five, and it was uh, it was fun. It was sort of you know, as you say, with the bounties, and it was the social media side of things you've got Ooh. with Black Belt as well. And it just sort of it was a good atmosphere. And I remember doing a blog post on it. Um, and because I got fourth, obviously, it was like a brag. But the final table was was fun and. When you got heads up, I thought you can't. That, if you win your own free roll, it's going to be. I like, know, yeah. Several people said that to me. I, I wouldn't have minded at all. I mean, we have a London Live tournament. Uh, you know, we've had it twice now, uh, obviously in London, and uh, that gets kind of four or five hundred people. And um, both years, and that I made day two, obvious brag. And um, the first year, I think I was like thirtieth, and people were starting to say, you know, it'll look a bit bad if you win this. <laughs> I was like, no way, I'm going to try and win, you know, the, it was the inaugural one, as well. I was like, I could go down in history, we could be having this tournament, you know, long after I'm pushing up the daisies, and uh, people will look back and they'll be presenting the Neil Channing Memorial Trophy and everything, I was, <laughs> I was definitely wanted to win it. Yeah, so um, if we just talk about uh, your sort of like starting poker, um, what I love doing is I've done it with a few guys that I've interviewed, uh, mm. Notably Phil Helmuth and uh, I think Roland DeWolf as well. Mm-hmm. And I go to their hending mobs and I don't know, it gives me almost a sense of uh, warmth when you see these guys like yourself playing um, 31st of May 2000, you know, a £50 pot limit hold'em event. Well, you say that. I mean, actually, I was just talking about that the other day because uh, that was in Southampton, I think. Yeah. Uh, that one. And that tournament actually had a name. I mean, it was a fifty-pound tournament, and it was called the South of England Championships. I mean, that was a big deal in those days. Um, I mean, inflation is not that enormous since then. Um, it's just that there weren't that many big tournaments. I mean, uh, you know, there's no way people would consider paying three grand to enter a tournament or something like that. I mean, it's not, and it's not like money's suddenly worthless since then. Um, it was just, it was just, you know, a lot different. There were uh, there were 60 people on average in most of the tournaments I played. Occasionally, I don't know, I can't remember that one off the top of my head. I remember the tournament. Um, there, there must have been 100, I guess, in that one, or 80 or something. Yeah, 97. Uh, 97, there you go. I was vaguely there, there was, a, I think there was a 50-pound rebuy at that tournament. Um, mm. And it was pop limit holding, which was quite a common thing then. Uh, if you ever had a holding cash game, which was quite rare in those days, uh, it would always be popular. Uh, no limit holding was was considered to be only a format used in tournaments, and mm-hmm. largely speaking, only a format used in the World Series main event. Uh, most of the tournaments in the UK were popular. Um, so that was what was that ninety seven we're talking about? And uh, that was ninety seven players. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 50, uh, fifteen odd years ago, not quite. Um, so I know there was, I, no, 2000, I, uh, 2000 of the tournament, there was 97 runners in it, it was 2000. Oh, okay, so 2000, so it's like 12 years ago, so, okay, so I was about 30, I'd been playing poker for, um, you know, 18 years at that stage, I picked up my first uh, hand of poker when I was about 12 years old, uh, played uh, five card stud generally, and then seven card stud sometimes, um, and I read a book 
which I was massively into poker straight away from the start. Uh, I used to live um, uh, sort of uh, between Ascot and Windsor uh, in Berkshire, and um, I, I'd occasionally, it was quite a common thing in our school for people to kind of go up to London on the weekend and hang out. And, you know, I remember at the age of 15, I wasn't really a very cool kid, but the cool kids would kind of go to Camden Market or Carnaby Street and the punk scene mm-hmm. had been going, you know, in 76, and this was a little bit after that in the 80s. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I used to go up to London, and I was a bit more geeky, I'd go up to London and hang around in bookshops and stuff and be on my own and things. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I went to Foils, which is a big bookshop in London. It's like a jumble sale for books. It's still open, ridiculously. I mean, uh, I can't believe how it's... I love Foils, but I can't believe it survived post-Amazon. Anyway, um, they had a book called uh, The Biggest Game in Town, which you may have seen. It's written by a guy called Al Alvarez, who I, I later ended up playing loads of poker with. And Al is a lovely, lovely guy who... Um, I wish I'd have seen him the other day. I, I went to the other day, and I thought he was going to be there, but I, I guess he's probably not in brilliant health. He wasn't looking great after my story, but I love Al. Uh, some friends of mine still play in a home game with Al. Um, and, uh, you know, he became an instant hero of mine. I, uh, he wrote a book about the 1973 World Series, which was won by Puggy Pierce, and uh, some fantastic pictures in there, all the characters, lots of stuff about Stu Unger. If you haven't read that book, you should definitely get hold of it. Um, Mm-hmm. And I read that book and I was like, wow, this is so exciting. You know, the World Series is all great. And, you know, talking about uh, Johnny Moss and, you know, the big uh, the big game uh, that he had with Nick the Greek and uh, stories about Treetop Strauss and, you know, coming back from one chip and all that kind of thing to win the World yeah. Series, a chip on a chair. Um and I went back to the guys at school that I played poker with, and there were three or four of us that played regularly, and I, and I said, uh, you know, we've got to play this new game, Texas Hold'em. And I basically was, uh, um, you know, Sir Francis Drake bringing the potato back or something. Um, <laughs> but we didn't, was that right, Sir Francis Drake? Was it? Oh, whatever, anyway. I went to history, it seems a long time ago. Um, I wasn't there when the potato was invented. Um Anyway, so I I, uh, I kind of brought the game back to the kids at our school, and uh, we didn't. Unfortunately, if you read the biggest game, it doesn't really explain the rules of Texas Hold'em. So there's lots of hands described. So we just kind of figured it out from there, and we actually figured it out wrong. We played it kind of wrong for a couple of years, and then I think um, another book came out, and we realised what we'd been doing wrong and started playing it right. So then I got to about that was probably at the age of about 13, and then at the age of about 15. Uh, my sister got engaged to this guy. She's a couple of years older than me. Uh, and me and uh, uh, Keith Hawkins, the camel, who's uh, yeah. uh, he's on Poker Stars as the camel and uh, quite, a, quite a big heads up. Follow him on Twitter. He's, qu- he's quite good value on Twitter, isn't he? Yeah, he's fantastic yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, and he's, he's a, yeah. quite a big online MTT player. He's had some great results live. I guess he's probably cashed a million in live tournaments. I'd have to look. Mm-hmm. He's definitely quite, uh, he's a bit of a blow-up merchant at times. He's not quite achieved. He's been a big chip leader in a, a lot of tournaments where he's ended up finishing 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think he's a great player, actually. Um, anyway, he was a mate of mine at school. I'd known him since I was 10 years old. Uh, and um, he was in our game. And me and him used to uh, get invited to play in a game with my sister's boyfriend and, and his mates. And... Uh, 
you know, we were we were skinco. We were young kids at 15, and we, you know, maybe cobbled together 12 or 15 quid to play. And uh, Alison's uh, um, Alison's boyfriend's mates all had about you know 50 or 60 quid or something. Um, and they were like much more concerned about drinking and talking about girls. And uh, we would, uh, you know, we would just be focused on the poker. And we loved it, Keith and I. We would win in the game, generally speaking. Uh, and then we'd go away and we'd discuss the hands. And I think that's, so. Uh, you know, people ask me about advice and stuff about what you should do in poker to get better and stuff. I mean, that was before videos, obviously, and before the internet, before uh, chances to get to meet people online and discuss. And we, we got better just by figuring it out ourselves. There, was, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't even very many poker books then. Uh, we had the ones that there were. Uh, we bought some Skransky stuff and whatever, and the uh, fundamental theorem of poker, and um, you know that kind of thing. I hold them for advanced players, and um, mm-hmm. I, I remember reading that one about 20 times. Uh, mm-hmm. And Super System, I bought Super System probably at the age of about 17, uh, and I remember that was like you know massively extra luggage you could only buy it in Vegas or order it from Vegas. I bought it in the gambler's store, which I used to visit every time I went to Vegas. I was actually mm-hmm. pretty bored that when I was about 19. Like, actually, I, I must have been 21. Maybe that was later, whatever. It's hard to fit it all in. Um, but yeah, we, that's really how we started. And um, I didn't go to casinos until I was about, actually, about 20. Uh, I used to mostly just play uh, home games uh, with Keith, sometimes around his house. His mum would let us play. Sometimes my mum would let us play around our house. And um, there was probably a pool of about 20 people that we knew that played between the ages of kind of 16 and 19, uh, and we'd we'd, uh, we'd hang out. There was um, uh, a guy that we used to play. His dad had a sports shop, and we had some bikes and fishing stuff, and we used to play in the store cupboard around the back. Uh, I don't think his dad knew. We used to sneak in there on Friday nights and stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. sit and play all night. But I was playing, you know, I was playing a fair amount of poker. It was a thing I probably did at least twice a week when I was kind of 16, 17, 18. And then I went to uni uh, and got to play with some new people there. But at uni, I was kind of, I was quite nervous about, I, I, I don't know whether this is hard to believe, I was kind of nervous about like meeting new people and adapting to not being at school now. And meet, I was in London, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found the whole place a bit daunting at first, and I, I used to run off back to Reading, which is where I come from, uh, well, where I was born. And uh, they had a um, smaller tournaments there. You could play on a Friday night. You could play five pound rebuys, uh, and in London, the Vic had ten pound rebuys, and, and I, I found that a bit too much for me and a bit intimidating. The Vic generally at that time, and, and I was probably about nineteen at this time. And, so I used to go to Reading. That was when I first started going to casinos, and I played with people like uh, Simon Trumper. He was uh, he was quite you know from Dust Till Dawn. He was yeah, uh, and late night poker and stuff. He was a big player in the game, and he was he was considered to be a big fish actually. We played him this uh, Friday night five pound rebuy. I remember he had nine rebuys one day, and you had to you had to actually lose all your chips before you could rebuy. So it was quite mm-hmm. hard to have nine rebuys in the, in the time, <laughs> and uh, no one had invented add-ons at that time. So um, somebody spending forty-five. I mean, I, I, I think one day I cracked up and spent fifteen quid on the tournament. Generally, I was either a five or a ten man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think Keith and I were discussing it after a few weeks, and we said, right, out of the sixty or seventy people that regularly go to this tournament, 
how many do you think have got any chance of winning it? And we kind of narrowed it down to about eight guys. Uh, Tony mm-hmm. Chapman, who runs a card club in Maidenhead called TC's, uh, he was a big regular in the game in those times. Uh, Simon Eastwood, who um, used to be a, like a massive regular in the Vic, played every single day. Uh, a popular Omaha player who, who I used to stake in tournaments, and I always thought it was a really good tournament player. I mostly plays cash. Uh, he was a regular every day. Graham Pound, who's, who's uh, a bit of a kind of veteran, the wizard. He goes around the circuit a bit now. I think he was sponsored by Paradise Poker for a couple of years. Uh, he, he was one I used to look up to then. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else was there. Well, there was a lot of, it seemed like a lot of really good players. They seemed that they're still sort of on the fringes of the circuit. Uh, but I, I felt like I got a good education in Reading. And then um, probably it wasn't until I was like 21, maybe, or 20, maybe a year after I started going to Reading, um, he said to me that he'd made the bold move and joined the Vic. And that if he signed me up, uh, he got free dinner in the restaurant for two. <laughs> And um, I remember we, there was a weekend when um, my parents had moved away from Ascot now, and so uh, we were going to the races at Ascot on the Saturday, and he said, well, you can come and stay at my mum's place, she won't mind. Uh, and so on the Saturday, we went to the races, and then on Saturday night, we went to Reading and played a poker tournament. Um, and on Sunday morning, we woke up, and his mum cooked us this enormous breakfast at, like, kind of midday. Uh, with, you know, the full trimmings, mushrooms and fried eggs and toast and jam and, you know, everything, all, all the constituents of a fried breakfast. Uh, and then he said, well, come on, let's go to the Vic because they've got the tournament at four. Uh, and we got to the Vic at about half one. And he said to me, well, you know, I've got this free dinner in the restaurant for signing you in, so why don't we have Sunday lunch? It's a big <laughs> lad piece. And... Um, I was feeling sick at that stage. Anyway, we had a three-course Sunday lunch, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, we started playing the tournament. So yeah, that was my first experience with the Vic. I mean, um, it was a ten-pound rebuy. Again, you had to go broke before you could rebuy, um, and uh, you could add on because no one had invented that. And I think between us, we had fifty quid, mm-hmm. uh, and we mostly used like ten and twenty basically and played in it. Uh, I can't really remember what happened. I didn't win it. The only thing I do remember was on the hand, um, I did something really stupid. On a, I had like a massive multi-way draw, uh, and I somehow managed to bet all my chips except for one, which was like a one anti-chip or something. I think it was a, I just meant to put it in, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the river, the other guy set me in, and... I didn't have anything, I just had a tie or something, and I saw it was a massive pot, and I, I, as I threw the chip in and it landed on the felt, I accidentally said the word fold, I was so flustered, mm-hmm. uh, and four people said, well, he's folded, his hand's dead, and mm-hmm. one guy who uh, stood, up, stood, stood up for me and said, well, that's ridiculous, you know, his chip's in the pot, and nobody would ever fold there, he's getting like 100 to 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they turned my hand over, and ace high was the winning hand, and I won a <laughs> massive pot. And if wow. the guy hadn't have stuck up for me, I didn't, I, my first experience would have been quite bad. And I may have never come back. I don't know. So maybe you may. That was Tony Hackey. I don't know whether you remember. He's a, he's a fellow. He was on late night poker and uh, been around the London poker scene a long time. I saw him the other day. So mm-hmm. that was uh, that was my first experience with it. But then. 
Uh, yeah, I was only a, an infrequent visitor. The, the, the only cash game you could play in was uh, £50 round of each. Round of holding, round of Omaha, hot limit both, one, two blinds, £50 sit down. Uh, and Keith and I generally, our poker bankroll would be about 30 quid, and you needed 50 to sit down. So if we went and played a tournament for 30 quid, we'd try and squeeze into the money so that we could get in the cash game generally. Uh, mm-hmm. Alternatively, we'd like, do a tenner in the tournament, and we'd sit on the £2 blackjack table desperately trying to get up to 50 so that we could go and play in the cash game, even though we didn't really know how to play Omaha. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't like a particularly profitable thing, but we were improving. We we were definitely, in, in that group in Reading, we were definitely in the kind of 10 people that were capable of winning the tournament. Uh, and we did make a few final tables. I, I final tabled one of the very first ones I played, maybe the second or third. Uh, and I learned a lesson there about protecting your hand. I, I went all in with an up-and-down stroke flush draw in the final, and uh, I, I was flamboyantly pushing all my chips into the middle and straightening them up, and me and the dealer took my hand and mucked it by mistake, mm. uh, and I was eliminated from the tournament. So that was an early lesson. But um, we saw that there was a side one. We saw the rest of the flop. I wouldn't have actually hit my thing, but um, it was, uh, yeah... I don't know. I used to, yeah. So I used to go there twice a week, probably until the age of about 23 or something. And it would primarily be for tournaments. The cash games in Reading were, you know, it was like Manila and lots of weird variations of Omaha, L mm-hmm. and Y and stuff, where the flops in a different shape with more cards on it and two flops and the pot split between this flop and that flop. And it seemed to be like a four-way all-in on every hand. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, people were sitting down with two grand, and I had about 80 quid to play with it or something by then. Uh, so I didn't really get to... I was always campaigning for them to start holding game. Everyone was like, why would anyone play holding in a cash game? That's the most boring thing I ever heard of in my life. Which mm-hmm. was, That was just the attitude for years and years. And um, until, um, well, what would it have been? Maybe the, uh, the, the 90s, really. No, nobody ever played holding cash. Like, they would have... The poker was dominated in England by festivals. There would be uh, four festivals a year in the Vic, which would have uh, four or five events at each festival. Uh, and these would be tournaments with buy-ins between £100, and the main event might be like 750 or occasionally 1000 Uh I think the tournament that later became the EPT London was called the UK Championships. And I remember when the buy-in went up to 1500 people thought that was ludicrous and how could anybody pay 1500 to be in a poker tournament. Um, And I never used to really play in the tournaments. I always thought that was mad. Why would anyone do that? Um, I think from the age of like 27 onwards, um, I mean, I'd just been gambling up until 27. I, I left university and went straight to the race course. I literally spent five days a week at the race course every week. I drove 5,000 miles a week in my car going from one horse race meeting to the next just to gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would go to every snooker tournament in the UK. If there was a snooker tournament, I'd take like 10 days off from the racing uh, mm-hmm. and just watch every single game that I could and bet with other players and people, not players, with the other people that visited the mm-hmm. snooker tournament. <laughs> not um, John Higgins. 
Uh, not John Higgins, no, he didn't really bet with him. I saw Steve Davis in the lift last night, and he was like my hero at the time. So yeah. I love Steve, he's a great Stephen player. Henry plays in my local Stephen Henry plays, yeah, Dundee. I've played with him yeah. before. I've played with Mark Williams, I've played, uh, I've played a lot um, with Matthew Stevens. Um, I haven't played with Steve very much, but I've watched him play quite a bit. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, Ken Doherty, he's a lovely guy, I like him a lot, and I've played with him a few times, and uh, I think he's quite a good player. Well. Jimmy White, he famously won the big... Well, he did win the Poker Million, and he's pretty yeah. <laughs> terrible at poker. Um, yeah. no, I think the best one might be Matthew Stevens. I think he probably, if any of them could go pro, probably Matthew Stevens uh, uh-huh. might be the best one. But, uh, yeah, I played poker with quite a lot of those guys. Um, so, yeah, I was going to sneak... I was going to, there were some golf tournaments in the UK, like, I think, three or four on the PGA Tour. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, when I was about four years old, I lived quite near Wentworth Golf Course, so I knew all the uh, kind of ways to sneak in there and stuff. And uh, I used to just turn up there, and uh, they used to have a, a, a William Hill tent you could go and bet there. Uh, I mean, generally, we were trying to avoid betting tax. That was the main thing. Keith used to come to some of these things with Camel. Uh, betting tax was 10%, and it went down to 9% in betting mm-hmm. shops, uh, which made it almost impossible for anybody to win. Um, so the, the, if you went to a live sporting event, it was a loophole in the law. If you were betting on course, like at a horse racing meeting, uh, first of all, the tax was 4%, and then they got, a, got rid of that altogether and made it zero. Uh, so if you went to like a snooker tournament, temporarily for that week, that became like a race meeting. So I was constantly going to places where you could make a bet with no tax. Um, and that was how I got my living, really. And uh, poker was just an add-on thing. If I, and I was going dog racing three or four times a week as well. Uh, if there wasn't much dog racing on or I was bored of dog racing that week, I'd go and play poker. And I probably used to play, like, twice a week. Anyway, I got to 27 years old. I, I, I'd lost all my money, and uh, it, was, it wasn't going very well. I mean, I had never had any money. I'd started up with nothing, and... Uh, I sort of spun it up to kind of 10 grand or something at one stage. And uh, by the time I got to 27, I, I had just one really bad year and it just I got wiped down a few months. Uh, my bankroll management was pretty poor. Um, I was spending quite a lot of money traveling around in hotels and stuff. And I didn't really have a big enough bankroll to do what I was doing. Um, I was quite good at gambling. I just probably just spent too much, really. Um, but anyway, I got to the age of 27, and I thought, well, I better get a job. So I uh, I got a job as a bit of a boring office job, and I ended up doing that for a couple of years. But during the time I was doing that, uh, I discovered spread betting. That was quite a new thing that had come in. Uh, and a friend in, in pool, I, I'd started working with dogs in pool. My parents had been born at that stage, and I, I was crashing with them for a while because I had nowhere to live. Um, and I got this job in Bournemouth, and so I started going to pool dogs, and I met this guy, Martin, who I've stayed, stayed in touch with ever since. Um, and he was in Vegas for the World Series this year and stuff, and uh, he was a good guy. And uh, we both got into spread betting together, and um, he was mega successful at it, won a load of money, and uh, the two of us discussed concepts in it at the start and tried to understand it. Uh, and I started betting pretty much my annual salary from this rubbish office job on a weekly basis. Um, <laughs> and uh, we started to make some money. And then, of course, I started thinking, well, I don't need to do this job anymore. Let's, let's quit. But I thought, well, I'll, I'd learn a bit of a lesson. I'll try and build up a bit more of a bankroll this time. Anyway, after a few, maybe a year or so of this, um, 
one of the spread companies offered me a job. So that meant going back to London, and it sounded quite exciting, and I could be just involved in the spread betting all the time, and I could do my own bets and stuff, and I could learn a bit more about the whole thing from the inside. So I went to work for a company called City Index, um, who aren't really uh, doing that anymore. And uh, I was in charge of sports uh, trading. I wasn't in charge of it, but I was one of the people there. There was only three of us. Um, and basically, yeah, we would look at sporting events and try and turn them into numbers. So England are coming out the bat in the cricket. How many runs do you think they're going to make? And we would have a guess. We'd say 360. And uh, you could go over 370 or under 350, and most people would go over, and we would pray that they would go under. Uh, and we'd make our money by guessing good. Uh, and this was all pre-internet, so we were just guessing. Like there was, It was quite hard to research a lot of these things. We were constantly getting books out of the library and uh, you know, looking at newspapers. And, and basically, I was paid to just sit around reading about sport and trying to you know, answer the phones to the customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the internet started to come in, and now it was all about researching stuff on the internet. And the internet was so new, and I didn't really get it for a while. And, uh, uh, yeah, I moved from one spread company to another. And, um, yeah, that was all around about 99. And poker was still just a very occasional thing, played two or three times a week. But the festivals that were happening... Uh, there were four a year in the Vic. I would attend each one. I would take time off work. Uh, but I would just sit in the cash games. Like the festival would go on for eight or nine days, and it was the only time you could play cash holding. Uh, the game would generally be either £50 sit down or £100 sit down. £50 sit down was one, one blinds, and £100 sit down was one, two. So I would sit in a £100 sit down. I would sit with 12 or 1400 mm-hmm. which was considered to be a big stack. Uh, there was no cap on what you could sit with. Um, and I would win. I would just win every time. Uh, I mean, the people were quite bad, and I was quite ruthless and dedicated. And in every one of those festivals, I would make four or five grand. And that would get me, there would be four festivals, so I'd make 16 or 20 grand a year, which suited me. Uh, I had I worked super hard. The Rick closed at four in the morning, and... It opened at two in the afternoon, and I would be there queuing up at two o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would call last three hands at five to four, ten to four, and I would play all three. And I'd be in the queue at the cash desk because I, I wanted to. If if I if if they finished the last three on my table, I'd run off and play one of the last three on another table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was obsessed. I, I, from the time I was in there, I didn't want to miss a hand. I wouldn't like stop and eat. I, you know, I would, I would run to the loop, wash my hands, obviously. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to miss a hand. If the dealer was slow, I'd be cross with him, you know, because mm-hmm. this was valuable time. It was only four times a year. Um, so then I started going to a few other festivals there in Birmingham, the Rainbow Casino, uh, and that one in Southampton. I remember that one. And, uh, yeah, I won the South of England Poker Championships in one of the, I think it was 2000, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. which, I made two finals, two days running. Uh, I think there was a hundred. The, the, the championship event was a fifty-pound rebuy, and then the mm-hmm. next day there was a hundred-pound free. It was kind of weird that the championship event was less than the other uh, one. But I, I made the two finals and I won the actual one that was called the championship. Which I got a hip flask with uh, Grosvenor Southampton written on it. How lovely! It was a bit crappy. <laughs> it's good nostalgia. Good nostalgia value. 
It was nice, yeah, it was nice. Um, but yeah, so now, um, I was kind of like into poker, but I had a whole bunch of other things going on. And also, there was an awkward thing that happened around that time. I think it was, I'm trying to get the timing right of all these things. I think uh, working for City Index was like 97, and 98, uh, I'd been doing another thing to make money, uh, which was blackjack. I'd started reading, because I like reading gambling books and stuff, and there wasn't that much poker literature out there. I'd started reading quite a lot of blackjack books, and I'd learned the card count. Not very well. I wasn't particularly like MIT uh, team or anything. I wasn't really that good at it. But I had a you know pretty good idea what I was doing, and uh, I started going around a few casinos and playing. And um, one day I went with a bunch of people. Actually, this would have been a bit late. This was probably 2001. I went with a bunch of people um, to uh, one of the Grosvenor casinos in Gloucester, Gloucester Road. Uh, which I never went into before, and um, I won just too much, really. Uh, it wasn't like an enormous amount, it was like 10 grand, but I, I won it from like 300 quid. And one of the <laughs> other guys was just an idiot. He just was being really loud, and he was just making it obvious that I was doing something. He kept mm-hmm. following my bets and betting really big when I bet. And, and he kept on kind of laughing about how we were, we were going to clean out the casino. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't like it. Uh, and about a month earlier, I'd won like 20 grand in the VIP, uh, just starting with like 500 and just grinding away. So I won like five or five or five, and then I bet like 100. And I sat there for like four hours and won 20 grand. I ran really good. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, he yeah, he ruined it really. I got left to the next day saying, you're barred from all Grosvenor's. Um, <laughs> which was a real pain because you couldn't play poker with it. The Rainbow in Birmingham was independent, so I could go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have poker in most of the other casinos, apart from the gala chain, which was, uh, which was, it was called the Stackis Casinos then, that was a Scottish firm. Yeah. Uh, and they got taken over later by gala. Uh, and that was the only place you could play poker. So I used to have to, um, if I wanted to get my fix of poker, I used to have to go there. Uh, and, yeah, I think I'd been going there for a while anyway, in 98. Because, but only every now and then I'd go there. For, they'd have tournaments there weekdays. And every now and then they'd have quite a good one. Maybe once a month they'd have 100 frees out. And they used to have something called the Grand Prix that was quite a nice thing. It brought up quite good prize money uh, about four times a year. So I'd go there just for those ones. And I remember the kind of people I was playing with, a lot of the kind of late night poker people then, the Hendon mob used to go and play in their £100 ones. I remember Ram bluffing me out of a big pot the first time I played him. And, um, he liked the late Hamish Shah, who was a great, great player, maybe the best player in London in, in the kind of 90s. Um, he won one of the series of late night poker. He was a brilliant player and he died. Um, probably, probably, we don't really know because he didn't, he, nobody already found out, but people think he got Legionnaire's disease from one of the casinos in Vegas, uh, from the air conditioning. But, uh, yeah, it was a very sad occasion. Uh, you know, I remember when he died. I just got friendly with him and then he, he immediately died. Um, but yeah, I used to I used to go to Russell Square and I'd play a lot of those guys from from late night poker and stuff. Late night poker started in 2000, and um, so I was going in like 1999, 2000, 2001. And then when I was part of the which I think happened in 2000 or 2001, uh, I just couldn't go there, so I had to start going to Russell Square. And also around that time, I think that was 2000. Also, the uh, the Poker Million happened mm-hmm. on the Isle of Man, the one that John Duffy won a million pounds in. 
And for some reason, I decided I'm doing quite well now. I, I'd won the South of England Championships, and I, I was winning stuff that doesn't appear on the Hindenburg, like the £100 tournaments in London, the £50 tournaments in London, that were kind of decent, you know, one sort of three grand, four grand. Mm-hmm. I, I had a run of playing, I, I used to play maybe 16 or 18 tournaments a year. Mm-hmm. After six consecutive years, I won four tournaments. Right. Um, so I you were the Jason Mercer of your day. Well, I, I, you know, I wasn't really playing that many. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Jason's a hard worker, but I mean, I just, I had a good record. If I made a final, I generally won it. I felt, you know, I didn't really have a lot of aches on my resume, and I, um, I, I just seemed to be, you know, I'd get to the final in seventh place, and I'd say to people, they'd say, "Does anyone want to do some kind of deal?" And I'd say, "Yep, make it winner takes all. Let's get on with it." Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember doing that one time when I was like ninth with eight big blinds, and I said we can we can make it win it takes all if anyone wants to, and I won that one. And um, the, yeah, I was kind of doing stuff that people probably didn't really do much then. Some four betting pre-flop, which was pretty unusual then. Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't that unusual. Just people always had aces if they did it. Okay. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, I remember like I do remember one particular hand in a tournament where. Uh, I did a massive pre-flop squeeze. Uh, I did a cold four-bet squeeze in the mm-hmm. final, and uh, I got two people to fold, and it took them like three minutes each to fold. And hacking deuce, and I showed a deuce, and there was a <laughs> crowd around, and they all went mental. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was quite funny. Um, so I guess I was doing a few things that people weren't doing, things I never do anymore. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was it was quite... But it was all kind of, you know, I was just picking it up as I went along. It was all very intuitive and feely, and I didn't really, you know, I hadn't... The stuff you could read didn't really talk about things like that. And Keith and I talked, you know, about concepts and strategy. You know, we knew about the squeeze play. I mean, I remember when I first saw someone do a squeeze play, uh, it was Surinder Sunar, and I thought, wow, that's clever. He knows mm-hmm. that I can't really call here because I've got that guy there, and he's doing that. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a hand, but as it happens, he's picked a good time because I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm going to try and do that. I didn't have a name for it. We didn't call it the squeeze play. And I said it to Keith, and he said, yeah, don't you know, like all the professionals have been doing that for years. I said, no, I hadn't even really seen that before. That's quite clever. And uh, well, that was like, you know, 12, 13 years ago. I can't remember when Harrington's book came out, probably 2006. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I went to the Isle of Man. I, I, you know, by now I was doing pretty well on the spread betting and I could easily afford uh, to splash out six grand on a poker tournament. The, the main thing was, did it seem like a good idea? The biggest tournament I ever played at that stage was probably £500. Mm-hmm. So six grand was... And I, I remember I flew over on my own. I didn't really know. I knew some people that were going to be there from London. Uh, but I I didn't know anyone like particularly that was going well enough to sort of say should we travel together and stuff. So I just flew on my own to the Isle of Man and I got there and I I hadn't been on late night poker. Late night poker had just been filmed the first series and they'd asked me. Um, they were desperate to get people. I think they didn't have enough people that had fifteen hundred quid to their name. And they had some criteria. They had to have a girl on every episode and uh, I don't know. There were. There were some other stipulations they had in it. But they said to me, yeah, you can come and you can wear a sponsored logo. And I thought, what the hell is that? I don't know who's going to sponsor a poker. And I, asked, I actually asked the company I work for, the spread company, 
that they want. And, and the big competitor we had was Sporting Index. Mm-hmm. And they offered to give me a logo. And uh, I thought, well, that would probably get me the sack if I did that. So <laughs> uh, I just didn't. And I was doing quite a lot of gambling, and I was going quite well with my gambling. I had accounts with quite a few firms who thought I was just a businessman or something and didn't really know what I did for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if I go on this late night poker, I'm just going to shock myself. They're going to know that I'm a professional gambler and I'm not going to be able to get my bets on. Yeah. It's just one poker tournament and it'll probably never take off this TV poker. And I don't really, poker's just a bit of a fun thing that I do on the side that makes me 20 grand a year by going to the Vic for the four festivals. But the rest of the time, it doesn't, it's not really a thing that's for money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I declined it. Well, I, didn't, I don't think I even declined it. I think I just didn't even really reply. And then they got back to me. Um, and so I, I missed out on that. But when I went to the Isle of Man, I remember being very conscious of thinking, these people are all so good, I can never keep up with them. The, um, the, the main event of the Isle of Man was a, um, it was a 6,000 buy-in. You know, I don't know if you remember, it was the first TV tournament where they showed whole cards live in the world. Yeah. Which was... Uh, I've, I've saw the... Back then, I only got into poker about four years ago. I'm mm. 28, but I remember yeah. watching late night poker because, like you said, I've always been mm. gambling and also trading as well. Um, yeah. I was spread betting at university in okay. 2002. But I remember watching late night poker, but I remember catching the, the poker million just because it was like the first yeah, it was time. incredible. I mean, oh, like, the, the, the final poker. table was brilliant, and Dom Duffy just he played a different kind of poker that no one else had ever played. Well, even now, when I watch, I've watched the the show. I think it was on YouTube. I mean, some of the moves and stuff he's doing are just they're sort of like. Well, I mean, it was suicidal, really. Most yeah. of it. I mean, he was he he would call a call a three bet pre-flop out of position and then check raise all in on an ace side board with Jack Queen. <laughs> um, and you know, he just needed to run into one person who actually had the hand, yeah. and he did it seven times, and no one actually ever had the hand. But he constantly represented cards that he couldn't really realistically have. Yeah. But he just always seemed to do it at a time where no one had anything. Um, Tony Bloom in the final. And um, a fellow called Ian Dobson came third. He was widely considered to be the best player on the final table. Um, was there not uh, like a strange payout structure as well? Was there not like a million for first and something well, this like... Well, the thing. It was probably their lab books, and they, they had said that they were guaranteeing the prize pool uh, at a million. It was yeah. called the Poker Million. Uh, but they wanted the first prize to be a million. So yeah. they were really hoping to get 250 people, maybe 300 people, and have like a 1.8 million prize pool uh, at 6,000 to enter. But... Uh, uh, with about three hours to go, there were 80 people registered. <laughs> so they were they were going to lose a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and so they decided to delay the start of the tournament and start running some turbo satellites. And of course, all the poker players, there were a lot of poker players hanging around that had 6,000 in their pocket. who were saying, well, how's this going to work? Is it literally just going to be winner takes all, a million to the winner? Because if it is, I don't really want to play this tournament. Mm-hmm. So... There was a big standoff, and they had a meeting, and then they said, "Well, okay, they were pretty good at labor." They said, "We're going to we're going to add another two hundred and fifty thousand, so it's now going to be one million two hundred fifty thousand prize pool, and we've still only got a hundred people signed up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the rest of the money is going to go into other prizes. So um, 
uh, actually, I don't even know. It might have only been 200, but it was 100 to second, 50 to third, 25 yeah. to fourth. Uh, and if you, I think only 11 people got paid. It was 100. And, they ended up with 166 runners, which just covered mm-hmm. the million, and they did the extra prize money basically, mm-hmm. uh, which which added up to around about 200 grand. Uh, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was massively top heavy, and they they said there were no deals in the final. That was a step, but it's kind of widely accepted that they did some kind of deal, which yeah. they all swore they'd never talk about. So I actually don't really know the details, but. Uh, they more or less played winner takes all, I think. Um, mm-hmm. they, they flattened it slightly, but uh, uh, yeah, that was that was pretty amazing. I, I was at my first table. I remember that quite clearly. Um, I was terrified of the whole concept, and I didn't think I'd be able to compete. But I wanted to test myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly didn't have any vision of winning it. Um, and my first table, I, I had Surinda Suna on my right, who terrified me enormously. Um, and still does. Uh, actually, I like Sir, and I was quite good mates. But um, for a long time, I was totally in awe of him. On my left, I had um, I can't remember who was on my exact left, but I had Lane Flat. I think was on my exact yeah. left, and he was kind of a new kid on the block. Only you had to be quite an enthusiast to have heard of him at that stage. Yeah. But I knew all about him because I was an absolute anorak and read all the magazines. You know, like all the magazines, card player magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had uh, we had Johnny Chan on the table, mm-hmm. uh, Hamish Shah, who I personally thought was the best player in the UK at the time, and we call him Zane Cash. Uh, and people knew of him, uh, the, uh, the Americans knew of him, he played in the biggest cash games in the world at that time, so mm-hmm. they knew of him. Um, and uh, we had Phil Helmuth on the table, so... Um, there were there was a couple of other people on the table as well. I can't remember now. But uh, yeah, I mean that just seemed like a, I, I said to Donahoe Day, "This is my table draw. You know, what do you what do you uh, have you got any ideas?" Because I said I'm terrified and I think I've got the absolute table of death. And he said, "Well, mm-hmm. yeah." He said, "That's uh, that's a pretty scary table. You, you may have accidentally picked the worst table in the room." <laughs> so I said, well, what, what advice have you got for me? And he said, well, didn't did you tell me? Because I'd sold some shares of myself to my colleagues in the spread betting, mm-hmm. uh, just just so they could have an interest, really. Not not particularly big shares. And a couple of people had a couple of hundred quid worth or whatever. He said, didn't mm-hmm. you tell me you sold some shares in yourself? So I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, my main advice would be get on the phone and sell more. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, I was really not confident, but I actually played really well, and I probably ran quite good. I think quite early on, I called a raise of Jack Ten from Serenia that came uh, seven, eight, nine, and he had a set. Mm. Um, so yeah, I won quite a big pot there, and that settled my nerves. And the person I clashed with the most was Phil Helmer. Um I just uh, I four bet him once, and I three bet him three times uh, in quite big situation near the end of the day mm-hmm. and there was one where he took forever and I had eight nine off suit uh, and he threw his hand away finally and then at the end of the day like four hours later um, he ran up to me I was like we didn't really speak much during the day I was in seat two and he was in seat nine and uh, mm-hmm. um, the dealer was kind of in the way so we didn't really talk but and I was too nervous anyway but he came up to me and he said, son, what are, you, what, are you, what are you having at hand? What are you having at hand? And I said, well, you know, you know I was playing kind of tight and uh, I didn't want to really mess around with you. I, I was kind of scared of playing against you. So he said, I said, basically, you know there's only really three hands I could have had. 
Yeah, that's what I, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> but I didn't tell him that one of the three hands was like nine off two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he went away. He seemed very pleased by that answer. And actually, yeah. uh, while we were standing talking, I remember the thing that we would we stood next to each other for a while because we were watching late night poker, and that was the first time it had been shown on TV. Uh-huh. Uh, and like all the poker players were just standing there open mouth saying this is the future we're, we're going to all be famous now mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah I just came away from that tournament thinking oh, this is, I like this poker a lot but now I had a problem because I'm back to London and I can only go in this one casino that has poker uh, the stackets and uh, so I just started going there all the time then and I I started playing like four tournaments a week in there from playing like 16 a year I was now playing like four a week Mm-hmm. Uh, and I literally just made a final table every week for a year, basically. And uh, I, I was winning like I had a ridiculous record. I was winning like one in eight tournaments I was playing and stuff. And they were kind of sixty, seventy, eighty run a tournament, sometimes a hundred players. Um, and finally, I got let back into the vet. One of the other players said to the management that you know he's a good guy, really, and he doesn't really play blackjack, and it was all a mistake. And uh, he allowed to just come and just play poker. So for two years, I was allowed to only turn up uh, when this guy was around, and he had to sign me in and stay on the premises and make sure I didn't play blackjack. Uh, and then after two years, they, they finally let me come in all the time. Um, but all sorts of other things were happening in my gambling life, which which was taking me a while to explain. Have you got time for all of that, or do you want to? Yeah, well, what the No, no, I, to me, um, I mean, I'm only 28, well, saying that as a dinosaur now in poker, but I mean, I just, I love the nostalgic stories and there's something about the, the comebacks and stuff. And I know that, you know, you mentioned the spread betting and I've heard you or read it well, somewhere. This, in this, it. Is, this is the story then. There was a big roller coaster, really. So I've yep. come back from the Poker Million, it's 2000, 2001. And I've switched spread betting companies to a company called IG Index from, from working at City Index. And at City Index, I was finding my feet. I was learning about spread betting. The company, you know, no disrespect to anyone that worked there. I learned a lot from some great people. But they were disorganized, the people, and they didn't really have a systematic way of running their company. Uh, IG Index were starting to use computers a lot more. uh, Such things as spreadsheets appeared. uh, And it was a lot less back of the fag packet in terms of calculating odds and uh, you know how we how we operated as a company. Mm-hmm. So I I I moved to there and um, I was a I was a, a smaller wheel and a, a smaller cog and a bigger wheel probably. But I, I was able to learn quite a bit. Uh, but it also meant that I, I had less day to day responsibility. Uh, so I could sit around doing my own gambling and nobody really minded. Uh, and the main thing I liked to gamble on because it was I was working daytimes generally and sitting in front of it all day was horse racing. I'd always been a big horse racing fan. I'd been going from the age of 20 to 27 every single day. Mm-hmm. So now I'm uh, and and they took the they took the betting tax off. That was the other thing. They, they they abolished it. So of course you could bet with no tax. Actually, that didn't happen until a bit later. I think around this time we were still paying tax uh, unless we went to the court. Um, well, there were two other guys that worked at IG, one of whom, well, they're both geniuses. Two of the clever gamblers, I know they're both still doing it, and they're both still making a lot of money. Uh, but one of them um, came up with, he discovered a, a, a sort of think tank of uh, uh, university 
sort of simulation uh, to kind of crack the code of horse racing. It was a Monte Carlo simulation, and, it, and mm-hmm. it, the idea was that it would give some kind of number, numeric rating to each horse in each race, which if you could then equate it to the price of the horse winning, you could formulate quite a good system. Uh, they also had all kinds of databases of horse racing uh, results and stuff, broken down into the 172 variables that, that decide which horse is going to win each race. That's what mm-hmm. they figured that horse racing had 172 key variables. And if you change the weighting of how important you make each one, uh, you can you can analyze the racing numbers. And this was their idea. Uh, these two guys had a company. They, they didn't even really do gambling. They just liked this kind of you know mental test of the whole thing. Uh, but this mate of mine, he took it a stage further and got hold of every bit of research they'd done and he joined their kind of uh, thing and he had to pay a subscription fee and they would send him discs and stuff with old horse racing results with their figures and it was kind of still early in the internet days and whatever so there was a lot of stuff coming in the post and things being faxed over and whatever um, and he learned how to use their information just better than anybody. They, they accidentally emailed us with, um, and we got to see everyone that was on their subscription list, and there was about 40 people. Um, and actually it turned out we knew like 20 of them. I know a lot of them were clients of the Spreadbank company. Uh, so which is quite interesting. But this guy, like, he just knew how to use it better than anyone. And so he decided that he was going to kill the bookies. That was the plan. Just go mad and just take them for every penny. So we started mm-hmm. up a syndicate to get the bets on. And uh, in fact, they started the syndicate before I even met the guy. He'd been running a couple of years. And he had a system whereby he would leave uh, a telephone answering message on a home phone number that he had. Uh, and 20 different people would call up at midday and it would leave a list of horses and say, right, okay, you know, Magic Mushroom is 8 to 1 and it's 3 o'clock and uh, I'd like to back it each way. Uh, so if you could get eight to one or bigger, you have as much as you possibly can on it. Uh, and then you call another number at the end of the day and leave a message saying, yeah, Magic Mushroom, uh, it opened 10 to one and I managed to get you 300 pounds each way. Uh, and he would totally trust you to say what you had, no problem at all. Uh, yeah. and you'd just be, if you said, well, I got 800 each way, I did really well, I managed to get 800, but unfortunately it got beat. Uh, well, then he would believe you. And if every time it got beat, you said you had 800 each way, and every time it won, you only said you had 100 each way, he might realize that maybe you're screwing him somehow. Yeah. And you'd be cut out of the syndicate. But it was pretty trusting the way it worked. And people were handling quite large amounts of his money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we probably had like 10 bets every day, the syndicate. Uh, and the first couple of years, it made a million pounds. Um, and I was just quite a shareholder in the syndicate on year three. I had 10% of the syndicate faction, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's not enough for me. I, I want to get more. And we, you know, I was betting, like, I was doing some stuff with these numbers myself, which wasn't as successful as I used to, but it seemed to work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we realised that in certain races they worked better than others. And I thought, well, I, with my contacts, I can help to get on. So I got, I was getting more bets on for the syndicate than an average member, which he was very pleased about because it meant we made more money. And I, so I sort of set up a kind of sub-branch and had a bunch of people helping me to get on. Mm-hmm. And they were running around racetracks and betting shops. And then the internet came and so 
opening accounts with lots of internet booking firms uh, and having bets on them and you get your accounts closed and then the person's wife or girlfriend would open a bunch of accounts and then their funny daughter or mother or father and yeah. uh, eventually we ran out of people. It just you know, you you have to really trust the people and if you just go through your acquaintances, when you get to the sort of uh, person you know three hundredths as well as the person you know the best in your life, uh, you don't necessarily trust them with all this kind of money. So, um, you know, it worked for a while and we won a lot of money. I probably personally made a million. Uh, And that was from just kind of, you know, I'd always been scratching around for, for, for 10 years. I've been a person who was pretty happy to make 50 grand a year out of gambling and spend 49 of it. Um, <laughs> I never really had a big bankroll saved up. And, uh, you know, I'd kind of teetered on being broke a few times. And I just, I gambled all the time, but I spent ridiculous amounts. And, and I never, you know, I'd never really had money. So now I suddenly had a lot of money uh, just lying around. I didn't do anything with it. It was in the current account, most of it. <laughs> under my bed in, in the form of loads of betting clips that I meant to go around and cash at some stage or another, mm-hmm. uh, or lying in, you know, uh, bookmakers' online accounts. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember I rung up a bookmaker once, and they said, uh, I said, oh, well, I'll have that bet then, and they restricted me to 20 quid or something. I said, right, fine, I said 20 quid. Uh, do you want my new card details so we can take the money? I haven't had a bet with you for five years. And they said, no, you have uh, you have 4,000 on deposit. And I was like, <laughs> do I? I didn't know that. What was that from? And they were like, oh, yeah, there was this bet and blah, blah, blah. And we tried to repay it on your card and your card was expired. And so we just kept it and nobody told you. Uh, <laughs> I probably, you know, there's probably a load of bookmakers out there that have got my money. You know, I've, don't even know the account number anymore. They might have gone out of business or something. I don't know. I was, you know, I was literally having 30, 40, 100 bets every day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with the betting tax, I had an account with William Hills, and I was talking to a guy I knew that worked there who was quite senior, and he said to me that my account was showing that it was winning £650,000. And I said, well, my figures show that I'm making 18000 out of William Hills. Hmm. And he said, well, obviously that's the tax, isn't it? Because they were losing, you know, they were effectively losing out of my tax. So, um, you know, if you bet £100, you would stake 110 because of yeah. the tax. And if it was a 6 to 1 chance, you'd win back 700. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was how it worked. So I was staking considerably more and winning less because of the tax. But I was churning, churning, churning money coming back and forward, back and forward, back and forward. And so really I was just, they were just a massive tax collecting operation for my betting tax. And I, I paid fortunes in betting tax. And the day they would do it, suddenly it was, you know, this thing we were doing wasn't really super deeply profitable. But as soon as they would do betting tax, it became immensely profitable. But the, the problem was just getting the bets on. We just, we just mm-hmm. couldn't get on. And I, I'd, I'd worked in spread betting. Uh, when I actually left to go to IG, it was I had a bit of a fallout with City Index, and they uh, they made me redundant and they gave me some redundancy money. Uh, I think it was the maximum amount you could get in those days for redundancy, which was twelve and a half thousand. Uh, and I actually that's what I sued them for wrongful dismissal, and um, they settled out of court for the maximum amount you could be awarded in a wrongful dismissal case in those days was twelve and a half grand. 
And I literally just settled for 12 and a half grand. They tried to settle for 12, and I just said, look, just, it's an open and shut case. If you want the legal fees, you can have it, and I'll drag it out as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you give me 12 and a half, I'll walk away. And they gave me the 12 and a half, reluctantly. And I said, they said, well, where do you want us to send the money? And I said, just put it in an account. I want to bet with you. Set mm-hmm. up a 15 X account for me, and I'll bet against you. And uh, I turned the 12 and a half into 150 within three months. Uh, and then every month I would call them up from uh, the account department and I'd say, could you pay me, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was something like £1,437. And they they thought it was a bit funny, like a funny amount. And then after four months, the woman said to me, I know what you're doing. This is, this is, like, this is you withdrawing the equivalent of your salary every month. <laughs> I said, that's exactly right, that's what I'm doing, I'm punishing you. I, mean, yeah. I don't even have to work for you anymore and now I get my salary every month. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to do it for another 10 years because, you know, anyway, they closed my account. But uh, then I started doing the sporting index and I won, a, I won a quite a bit with them, over 100. And uh, um, they don't, I think in those days they'd shut five people's accounts ever for women. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of them was Tony Bloom. I think he was he rumored to have won two million. Uh, oh, no, sorry, two, 250,000. It wasn't even that much, really. Um, but uh, I think I want to. I want to about a hundred and something, and then shut my account. So now I can really do sprint betting. There were a couple of other small firms, but they they were they used to do kind of slightly sharp practices to stop me having a bet. So I, I didn't really do any deals with those firms, and I so I just got bored of sprint betting. I couldn't get on anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was still doing the horses thing, and I, and, I, and I thought, well, the best way to make money out of the horses now I can't really get any bets on. Um, is to be an on-course bookmaker because I can take bets on all the other horses in the races uh, and I'm just going to win. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's easy. Um, but uh, it wasn't really that easy. I, I completely screwed it up. Um, the, the, the buying and selling of race course pictures became a thing that you could now do. Uh, so, if, for example, if I wanted to um, go and bet at the Cheltenham Festival at the Gold Cup or something, I would have to pay for a kind of debenture and I would buy it off of the previous owner the right to go to Cheltenham and be a bookmaker for every meeting that year. Right. And if I wanted to, uh, and I would turn up at the meeting and they would say, right, who's got pick number one? Where would you like to stand? And they'd say, I'd like to stand in the front row, please, uh, just there. Okay, pick number two, where do you want to stand? And you could buy these picks. And to stand in the front row was it would have to be an early pick. So if you pick like number ten at Cheltenham, it might cost you a hundred grand. Uh, yeah. And now you, for life, you've got the right to get to Cheltenham Racecourse whenever there's a meeting and stand in the front row and be the tenth person to pick where you stand. Yeah. Um, you still have to pay to go to the meeting. You have to pay the racecourse maybe two hundred quid, and you'd have staff costs and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd have a hundred grand tied up now. And until you decided to not go to Cheltenham anymore and sell that right onto the next bookmaker, you couldn't do anything with that money. So I decided I wanted to bet at places around the country, and these picks were going up in value all the time. They were auctioned every month. And I thought, well, I'll invest in all of these picks because that means I can be a bookmaker all these places, and I've got money tied up in something that's, invested, that's appreciated. So I spent 600 grand on these picks. Um, and I had a whole load of them. Uh, and then I started going to all the meetings. And I basically spent 
was a very inexpensive going to the meeting. Uh, and it was great for a while, you know, we'd take quite a bit of money and I, I was cleverer than most of the other bookmakers and my prices were, were better and uh, we made about 14% uh, on turnover and the turnover was quite high because we were offering quite attractive odds, we were very good at picking which way the market was going, so people would come a bit with us more than the other bookmakers, we, we'd go through to one on horse when everyone else was 5 to 2. Uh, and everyone would run in and bet it with us, and then two minutes later it would be four to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just happened all the time. Uh, sounds great, except for Betfair came in, that was the main thing. Uh, and now everyone could see that the horse was about to make four to one because the people that formerly were giving me that kind of information were now betting on Betfair, uh, and the information was there for everyone, so that didn't really help. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, people stopped going racing. Uh, the, the tax came off in betting shops, so now there was more incentive. There was less incentive to go to the races just to avoid tax. Get punters, bigger punters could just go to a local uh, lab book or something uh, and not have to pay tax or not have to uh, schlep to the races and run up expenses. Uh, people started getting Sky TV, so you could watch racing from home. Uh, people mm-hmm. started getting mobile phones, so. Uh, you could ring your bets. If you went racing, you could still ring up William Hills at Lab Books and, and have a bet. You didn't need to bet with the bookies at the races. And people started doing debit cards. That was a big new thing. Yeah. Uh, so instead of having to bet on credit and apply for a credit account, it was pretty easy now to just bet with a, a high street bookmaker on their telephone or mm-hmm. on the internet. You know. uh, and all of those things happened at once, really, within six months. Uh, and suddenly the 600 grams of the pips I bought just became virtually worthless. I ended up selling them two years later for about 40 grand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a massive, massive blow. Uh, meantime, I, I was I was dealing with people that I knew less and less to get my bets on. Uh, mm-hmm. I was having to get friends of friends of friends to put bets on for me because I couldn't get a bet on at all. I remember one day I, I run up William Hills to have a bet on a horse and asked him for £100 in my own name on my own account. Uh, and a guy that worked there said to me, it was unbelievable what happened. He said 28 people in our office immediately went for a cigarette break, and they were all in the corridor ringing up lab books and corals trying to bet on that horse that you wanted to bet. Uh, and the horse was 16 to 1. Uh-huh. It went off 11 to 4. God. I didn't even get £100 on it, and it got beat. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just... It was ridiculous. I mean, I thought it was probably like a six to one chance, but yeah, I know, and, it, and it, it actually it went. I don't know how much you know about horse racing, but if a horse opens up sixteen to one and gets back in, it normally goes sixteen, fourteen, twelve. This one was sixteen, eleven, eight. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was just like the prices were just off the board. Um, yeah, were these uh, It turned doing... out. It turned out afterwards. We'd had a. I mean, what actually happened was. Um, We'd had a race earlier in the day where we bet two horses and they came first and second in the same race. Uh, and in this race, we were actually trying to bet two horses. Um, and they both got smashed off the board. And it turned out that one of the guys that was putting bets on for us had done two forecasts, reverse forecasts, and a big reverse forecast double. And if he got the forecast in the second race, you know, name the first and second in correct order, uh, he was going to absolutely clean up. Uh, and in order to make the dividend for the forecast go right down, they needed the prices of the, the two horses in the second race to collapse. Uh, mm. And that's why there was so much money for this horse. But 
It got a bit ridiculous like that. If I went to the races, I would have people following me around, seeing what bets I was doing and trying to listen to my phone calls and stuff. Um, I had a guy working for me at the races, and he literally just had people following him around the whole day. Uh, and um, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Um, but the racing was starting to go a bit wrong now. Like I was getting let down by people. There was a guy who was supposed to be putting bets on for me, and one day we bet like four winners, two sixteen to ones, and an eight to one. Uh, and he rung up and he just said, "Why? Well, I, I really screwed up for you." I, I, overslept and didn't put the first one on and then I thought well if I keep the money from the other ones that will kind of make up and uh, you know he cheated us basically and he, he yeah. owed me like 27 grand out of that day uh, mm. and he just didn't have a penny and uh, I never got that money and uh, yeah there was a bookmaker up north who I won 200 grand off in a short space of time and he had to pay me 20 grand a month in installments, which ended up being maybe three months. And I, I did get it in the end, but it, it took me like two and a half years to get the money. And this was all happening at the time that the, the pictures were becoming worthless, and I was still going to the races trying to make it work, uh, and I was spending five, six hundred pounds a day on expenses, uh, paying staff and stuff, and just losing money basically and I, I, was, I was losing like you know a thousand pound a day like that on the business and uh the racing i was starting to bet best winners we had a really bad season in like 2003 um i, I lost a lot of money at the big rubbish meetings children and well Astrid and glorious good we were all terrible uh and basically i went from being someone that was quite wealthy to having no money and owing a lot of money. I owed three hundred sixty five thousand. I had an overdraft facility of twelve thousand which I never used to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly that was eleven thousand eight hundred overdrawn. Uh, so I basically had two hundred quid that I'd sort of saved of my overdraft facility for food. Uh, and no money. My credit cards were all maxed out about thirty wow. grand worth. I took out a loan by telling the bank that my house had had a fire or something. <laughs> and they did me like a 15 grand loan, which I'd immediately done at the races the next day. Um, and uh, yeah, I was in a really, really bad way. Uh, and I, I, I was, I was really in trouble. I was a bit suicidal. I was, I was very depressed, and I, I stopped going out. I started eating a lot. Uh, and um, some friends of mine were very loyal, and one of them uh, was a guy who used to work in the city who I'd known from being a client of City Index a few years ago. And he said to me, I was still playing poker by the way at this stage, that was about yeah. the only thing that kept me sane. I was, uh, I mean, literally, I was broke. And I, I actually started, I remember once I went to Brighton for a £10 beginners tournament at that time uh, because I just thought, well, Maybe I could just go and make 500 quid and I'll just pay the rent mm-hmm. for this week and stuff. Uh, yeah, I was still living in a rented house at that time. I, uh, I, when I had all this money, I, if you'd have said to me, give me five grand and I'll go and buy you a house, uh, I would have done it. I'd have thought of like filling in paperwork and going mm-hmm. to new properties and that was just like way too difficult for me. I couldn't possibly cope with that. That would have meant a day without betting. Yeah. Uh, so I I just lived in rented. I was living with like three other gamblers, and we were like students, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were they were willing fortunes as well, but um, yeah, we we just were all too lazy to actually get out there and do something and buy a place and stuff. Um, 
Yeah, I remember going to Brighton and playing that beginner's tournament and coming second. Um, and I think I got like £400. And I took it to the races the next day and lost it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was doing that sort of stuff. I, I was playing a few tournaments still. Uh, yeah, and then I was playing in the big PLO game in London around that time as well, which was, it was 10, 20, 40. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't really know PLO when I started. And I was just an annoying short stacker. And short stack mm -hmm. in those days meant six grand. That was a really right. good game. There were people sitting with 60 grand in that game. Mm -hmm. uh, I was probably 80 grand up on the year in that game after the first six months of 2002. Uh, mm -hmm. And then at the end of the year, I only won 30. And then the game started to not be as good, and I stopped playing it. Um, but I learned a lot about how to play PLO and how to play poker in that game, um, mm -hmm. which was kind of interesting. It's now time for the Sponsor Strategy segment, brought to you by PokerXFactor.com. As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, you can get yourself a $20 discount to PokerXFactor.com membership. Simply go to PokerXFactor.com and enter coupon code OneOuter, that's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R. If you're serious about improving your poker game, then I would definitely recommend getting yourself an account at PokerXFactor.com. It's filled with poker training videos from some of the top names in online poker. So here is this week's sponsored strategy segment brought to you by PokerXFactor.com. Hey everybody, this is Alex Cambaris for PokerXFactor.com. Ever feel like you've lost a big chunk of your stack without even realizing it? That's probably because you're making plays for too high a percentage of your stack. For example, I rarely 3-bet fold for greater than 20% of my stack, 25% at the very most. I also rarely steal the blinds with a stack of less than 18 big blinds. Whenever I do play a hand, I always think ahead. Will I have room to c-bet and then fold? Will I have room to 2 or 3 barrel if necessary? Or if this play fails, how will it affect the playability of my stack? If you're not happy with those answers, then you're probably better off passing. Again, this has been Alex Cambaris for PokerXFactor.com. Okay, so um, I've been... Uh... You know, having a quite a good time at the races, everything was going all right, uh, 2002 uh, and some of 2003. And then in 2003, you know, all that stuff that I said about why race course bookmaking wasn't a good job uh, kind of went wrong. And I have kind of joked and laughed it off since, and uh, somebody did a wiki page for me where they said um, that, you know, Channing was uh, not a very good race course bookmaker uh, because his prices were too generous. Um, that's actually, you know, that was me being a bit kind of self-deprecating. I think I said that in an interview one day and somebody took that. Um, I was actually, I think I was quite a good racecourse bookmaker. Um, I understand a bit more about horse racing than most of the other racecourse bookmakers. Some of them are very talented, but a lot of them are quite stupid. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I think it's a very hard thing to make money at. Or certainly the way I was going about it. Uh, and I think now... Most of the people that are race course bookmakers are just doing trading on Betfair, basically. Uh, mm. And if you want to do trading on Betfair, you can, you can do it from the comfort of your own home without having to uh, drive to uh, Ludlow and uh, Frontwell and Plumpton, much as I love those places. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I sort of stumbled along with the race course bookmaking. I was very, very, very slow to realise that this wasn't really... Um, I, uh, uh, it wasn't, wasn't really a, a particularly, um, you know, viable business proposition anymore. 
so you know, I was uh, I, it, it was a bit slow, and it, it cost me a lot of money. And I, uh, like I said, I was carrying on playing poker. Like throughout my whole story, poker was always something there along the way. Um, mm-hmm. When I was uh, when I was at the races as a bookmaker, I was still uh, taking time off to go to the festivals at the Vic. Uh, I would still go to the World Series every year. I've been to the World Series every year since '97. Uh, I've been to Vegas every year since about '92. Uh, I think that's about right. Yeah, '92 would be uh, yeah, probably yeah, '92. I think was the first time I ever went to Vegas. Uh, and and '94, five, six, I started to go two or three times a year. Uh, the World Series, I went in 97 and I just played uh, cash games. Uh, I watched Stewie Younger win the tournament. Uh, they played the final table outside on Fremont Street. Uh, yeah. I got to speak to Stewie. I got introduced to him and uh, right. uh, to a mutual friend. And I was I was totally starstruck and uh, and, and flabbergasted. And uh, I told him I with two tables left. I told him I thought he was even money to win and he was easily the best player. And he. He said to me, "No, no, I, I, I don't reckon I'm, a, I don't reckon I'm even money. I think you might be overdoing it. I, I gotta be around a, I gotta be around an eight to five shot." <laughs> and uh, I was, yeah, I, was, I said, "All right, even money. I don't want to lay any more than that." And uh, he was, yeah, he was funny. He, I, I liked him, and uh, although he was, you know, he, he had some bad thoughts. Um, but I was very kind of outside of the poker then. Like, I was more of a a sports gambler and a and a, uh, a race course guy. When I went to the casinos in London, uh, particularly in the, the Russell Square Casino where I used to play when I wasn't out in the rick, uh, I think they considered me to be a bit of a kind of rich idiot. Um, I, you know, I played a very open and flamboyant style, and most of the other players uh, were very tight. All the professionals played a very, very taggy style, very, very, considered these days to be complete rock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I came in and tried to raise every pot uh, and build pots and get the game going a bit. Uh, and people generally thought that that was a, a minus EV style. Uh, I, I knew from my figures that uh, I was doing all right, thanks very much. Uh, but I remember one guy I played with for like four years, uh, and I ran into him in Vegas once, and he asked me what I actually did for a living because he. That it, you know, to his mind, it was impossible that I could be making money out of poker. And at that time, I was going into the VIP three or four times a week, uh, and uh, you know, because I'm spending eight hours a day there. I mean, what, what did he think I was doing? You know, was I a senior civil servant or a cabinet minister? I mean, you know, like clearly someone that goes to the VIP four times a week for eight hours a day doesn't have a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe he hadn't really figured that one out. But uh, anyway, whatever. So, um, so yeah, 2003, uh, it started to go a bit downhill, and 2004, uh, it went horrendously wrong. I mean, I, you know, the the stuff with the guys uh, where we had the syndicate going and people were putting bets on for me, it got to that stage where I was relying on friends and friends and friends, and I got very badly let down by several people. Uh, and people owed me money. Uh, I started to lose money at spread betting, which I'd never done before. That was in the last kind of throes of me being allowed to do spread betting. I had a few bets that went quite badly wrong. Uh, and I, I decided that I was, uh, I suddenly decided I was an expert on the stock market uh, for some reason or another. Uh, I decided to buy a whole load of tech stocks and gamble on where the NASDAQ was going and stuff. 
Um, it turns out I'm not an expert on those things, and uh, I lost um, a ridiculous amount, which I, uh, you know, it, it was very stressful. I mean, if you lose money just betting on a horse or something, you watch the race, it's quite exciting. If it wins, you're all happy. If it loses, you're a bit gloomy, and, and you move on to the next one. Uh, if you bet money on the stock market, you've got it's hanging over you the whole time. When it's going badly, you just feel totally fed up the whole time. And, and generally yeah. speaking, it was just going badly the whole time. So uh, that was pretty horrible and made me quite gloomy. Um, I wasn't doing any blackjack. I'd stopped doing that because I, I was scared that I was going to get barred from the rest of the casinos. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be allowed to uh, play poker at all. And I, and I knew that poker was something I could rely on. It was pretty much the only thing that, when I, you know, when I really needed to get money, I could rely on it and go back to it. For, for, for example, uh, when things were really bad in 2004, um, I, I remember going to the races at Goodwood one day uh, for the glorious Goodwood meeting. I lost all my money on the first day, and it's a, it's a five-day meeting. Yeah. Uh, and we booked up hotels, and I've got staff and everything like that. And I, I literally didn't have any money to go and, and be a bookmaker on day two. So uh, we uh, drove to Brighton, and I played in a beginners tournament in Brighton. I uh, came second or third. Uh, I, don't, I don't know who the guy who beat me was. Um, damn him. And uh, I got like, I don't know, four or five hundred quid. Uh, and that started me up the next day at the races. I went there, and that was my uh, that was my seed capital for the next day. Uh, and I think I was broke again by the end of the second day. Uh, and I went back on the third day. I think I think I went and played another tournament in London between the uh, between the second and third days. And uh, I got something out of that, and that was enough to go on the third day. Uh, but that was probably my lowest ebb. I think that meeting at Goodwood. Uh, I think that's when I decided I had to stop doing this race course bookmaking. Uh, I don't, I, I've looked, I've checked the results since. I don't think bookmakers have had a winning Goodwood since then, and that was 2004. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, literally, I, I would have jumped off the bridge then, I think. I was very, very depressed. Uh, and I, I just withdrew. I, I, I went into a shell. I stayed at home all day uh, watching TV and playing loud music and being annoyed with myself. Um, and... Um, I'd got into a bad situation. I'd borrowed money from other gamblers, other poker players. Uh, some of the guys who used to put bets on for me, I'd uh, run up um, bets with them, and now I couldn't pay them the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was people that I'd done favors for in the past. Now they, they were there to, to do me a favor. But I, I did abuse that friendship with some people, and, I, and some people fell out with me quite badly over it. Um, I ended up having a bet of about 365000 I had no money left. Uh, out of that money, probably about 50 of it I owed to the bank. Uh, so, I, you know, I was in a bit of a bad way. I was fending off people. I was trying to pay bills and rent and stay afloat. Uh, and it was quite hard. Um, I got made redundant for my job. I mean, at the time, I was still working uh, for the spread betting company. I was doing the race course bookmaking by taking all kinds of holiday days and skiving off and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, they kind of realised I was a bit of a waste of time, and they, they got rid of me. Uh, but I got made redundant. I got a bit of money, uh, and basically all of my creditors immediately started ringing up and demanding money, and uh, I, I paid a little bit to everybody until my redundancy money was gone. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I basically was left with none. Uh, and a fellow came, a fellow came along who was an old friend of mine, and said uh, he came up with this wacky idea 
he was going to give me 20 grand to go to the races. It was actually to gamble at the races. I was going to get one last shot at it. Go to the races, and uh, you can uh, you can just stand there, be a bookmaker all day, uh, with 20 grand of his money, and if I won, I could keep anything I won, give me his 20 grand back, and if I lost, uh, he would just um, swallow it. He would, he, I would owe him 20 grand, and he may never get it back. And this was a guy who probably only had about 60 grand in the world. So, you know, this was a pretty decent thing. It's not like he was yeah. a multi, multi-millionaire. I mean, he was a bit of a nutcase, obviously. Um, <laughs> and he lived in a big house that had some equity on it and had kids at private school and a wife and a dog and stuff. But, you know, he, he was prepared out of his 60 grand gambling tank to give me 20. Uh, and I said, well, look, that's really good of you. And if that is what you want to do, uh, that is so fantastic. Um, what I would prefer <coughs> is that you... Uh, <coughs> actually, this was this, this period lasts a long time, this depression period. Uh, this didn't happen, actually, until the end of 2005. In 2005, uh, my, I, I, I want to get the chronological order right. 2005, I actually was involved in uh, my friend's uh, uh, sports betting business where he sponsored me to go to Vegas, and I went to Bellagio, uh, five times back and forth, and I lived in Bellagio for 17 weeks, uh, and I played all kinds of tournaments in Bellagio uh, with his money. But I didn't have any other money of my own, so in the times between those tournaments, uh, you know, I just sat in my room in the Bellagio being a bit depressed. Uh, mm. I spent a lot of time in the internet cafes, um, sending emails, I even exchanging emails with people, um, and, and that's when I came to start writing my blog. I started it as an email diary to a bunch of people. Uh, just because I was a bit lonely over there. There wasn't many Brits who used to travel back and forward in those times. Uh, probably mm-hmm. only really Devilfish, Sarinda, uh, one or two times the Hendon Mob. Uh, occasionally John Gale would be over there, or maybe Dave Colclough. But there, there were literally, you know, these days, if there's a, a big World Series event or something like that, there might be uh, as many as four or 500 Brits travelling over to stay for three or four weeks at a time. Yeah. Uh, Staying for that length of time in Vegas was something that only three or four people did. You know, there just weren't that many professional poker players. Uh, and I was friendly with the ones that were there, and I went to the World Series every year. Uh, and if I just showed up at the Bellagio on my own, I would see some people I knew. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't really kind of that established on the scene. Uh, I was just kind of somebody that kind of popped up at tournaments occasionally. And... Um, yeah, although I think I learned a lot on my poker game, developed a lot in 2005. Uh, I didn't run too good, and uh, I, don't, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember having like a brilliant time. It sounds fantastic, like living in the Bellagio and everything, uh, and waking up there every day. And uh, But I, I, you know, I, I, let, I literally stayed within the walls of there, and occasionally I'd wander to the internet cafe, and uh, I'd have a walk around. I had a lot of people watching, but uh, I didn't have a particularly brilliant time. Uh, anyway, I came back from there, and that was when this guy made this kind of crackpot offer. It was October 2005, and he said to me, uh, you know, I'm going to give you this money. And he said, I've got 10 grand on me in cash. Uh, here you go. Uh, I met him in the VIP, and he handed me the money, and I took it to the bank the next day, and we opened a bit for account. Um, and uh, I put the money in. I said to him, if you're going to give me 20 grand, let's put it in a bet for account. Instead of it being a one-day gamble, let's do it in a very, very slow, methodical way. I'll make all the decisions, and uh, I guarantee you I can, I can do something with this money. I've got some good ideas of things that are exploitable in the sports betting market. 
and I obviously the bit of working capital. So he gave me 10, I paid it in, I opened the account, uh, it was a Thursday, and I rung him on the Sunday, and I said, I've got three grand left, it's gone horribly wrong, all sorts of things have gone wrong, and I'm really sorry, and if you want, I'll just send you your three grand back. Uh, alternatively, I can start playing way, way smaller, and it'll take me three months to get it back to 10 grand again. Uh, meantime, I've got no money to live on. Uh, and he said, okay, I'll give you another 10 on Tuesday. Why don't you just gamble the 3,000, uh, see what happens, and hopefully you'll, you'll be able to build it up again just from 3,000. So I said, okay, um, all right, I'll see what I can do. Uh, by the end of that Saturday, uh, Sunday it was, um, I'd got the 3,000 up to 10 again. Uh, and 20 months later, uh, I'd turned the, he never gave me the other 10,000. 20 months later, uh, basically, uh, it had been turned into 340,000. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, probably I, I was, I was probably gambling a little bit at the start. Uh, I definitely took a few chances. Uh, it wasn't brilliant bankroll management at all times. Um, but once we got over 50,000, um, I was performing really well. I was mm-hmm. very obsessional about it, totally, totally engulfed in it. Uh, I would wake up at 11, uh, well, half past 10 every day. Uh, at 11, I would start um, betting on the morning dogs. Uh, that would go on until lunchtime. Uh, then I would quickly nip to Tesco's. Uh, I'd make four phone calls to Betfair on the way to Tesco's and on the way back, even though Tesco's was only about 300 yards away. Um, I'd get back. Uh, I'd be eating while trading. Um, I'd be starting to put some stuff up on the afternoon horse racing. Uh, I would sometimes get involved in the afternoon dogs. Uh, then if it was uh, during the football season, I would take a short break between about half six uh, and uh, 7.30 and uh, I'd be cracking away on the, on the football in the evening. Uh, if it was in the summer, it would be evening racing uh, and that would go on to about 9.30 and then I'd have a bit of a break until about half past ten and I'd start betting on the NBA basketball, which I, I would place my last bets on that at 3.30 a.m. Uh, mm. Occasionally, if I had a big position on the NBA basketball, I'd stay awake until 5.30, until the last game finished, uh, mm. and then I'd wake up again at 10.30 the next morning. Uh, about three days a week, the NBA basketball would be a bit quiet. Thursdays, there was only three games. Uh, and on those days, when it got to 10.30, um, I'd just go to the Vic, and I'd sit in a game. Uh, occasionally, I'd go down to Brighton, uh, where there was quite a good Omaha game, and I'd see in a game there. Uh, and all the time I'd be phoning Betfair and just checking things that I'd left up or putting new things up. I wasn't really very focused on the poker. I would drink at the table. I was quite, um, I don't know, I needed a kind of a release of stress. I just I just really went to play to get out of the house. Yeah. Uh, I remember like just I would get a bottle of wine by the side of me on the table and drink most of it and, uh, and just play in it. Like, Kind of smallish holding game and just raise every hand and bet every slot uh, for a few hours. And I looked at my figures for those years and uh, on poker, and I, I actually was winning, but I, I wouldn't recommend it as a great winning system. And I don't think the mm-hmm. poker was uh, particularly good, but it, it, you know, I I did play a little bit, 
Uh, I still went to the World Series. I had um, I had a, a the 2003 World Series was the only one since 2001 where I didn't play the main event. Um, I had such a rotten trip, uh, I didn't manage it. 2004, I um, basically uh, I went uh, and I, I yeah I played it in 2004. Even when I was completely broke in 2005, I played the main event. Uh, and I cashed a few times along the way. Uh, poker, you know, poker was always something I could kind of rely on. Uh, and uh, yeah, really, that whole period, I, I, I just, uh, I got into a run where I would, I would go to the bank on a, on a Monday, uh, and I would withdraw five thousand in cash. Uh, sorry, I would pay in a check for five thousand, which was a check from Betfair. Uh, and then on Tuesday, I would go back and I would withdraw four and a half thousand, uh, and uh, five hundred of it would go uh, to the other guy. We did a deal in the end whereby uh, I would give him five hundred a week uh, out of the account, and I would take four and a half grand a week out of the account. I mean, he was mm -hmm. so generous to me, really. He he basically yeah. of the three hundred and forty thousand, he ended up getting about sixty, and I got about two eighty. Um, which is a pretty uh, pretty fair split for my yeah. I mean, I probably did 14 hours worth a day on it for 20 months. Uh, I was going to say... All he did uh, was put up 10 grand. But on the other hand, you know, he yeah. put up 10 grand when no one else was putting up 10 grand when I didn't have a shilling. I was um, going to say, Neil, about that time when you were sort of like... You, you mentioned you put on a lot of weight and you were sitting at your computer for like... Yeah, yeah, I was literally... I literally just sat at home. I was eating... You know, I didn't want to be in the kitchen because uh, I, I couldn't leave the screen alone. I, I might have 800, 500-pound bets going on at the same time sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and they were, you know, things that were unlikely to get matched or might get matched. Uh, and I, I, you know, I wanted to be constantly monitoring them. I was running back and forward from the kitchen, so I was always eating really snacky things that were easy to eat, which are generally rubbish and really bad for you. Uh, I was eating a lot of takeaway food all the time, loads of curries and Chinese and stuff. And if I did go out and eat, it had to be like late at night because it was, yeah. it was usually, you know, I'd miss the basketball a couple of nights a week. And I might go and get a late curry or Chinese or something like that. Uh, I was sharing a place with uh, two other gamblers, uh, both of whom were online poker players, uh, who, uh, who also did some sports betting on Betfair. So, uh, yeah, the three of us were just, uh, you know, it was another kind of student house I lived in, basically. We just, you know, we just ate really badly, went to the pub sometimes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was generally, uh, you know, I was leading, leading a fairly solitary life. Uh, and I was just sat on my computer the whole time. And my weight went up to 17 stone 10. Mm -hmm. uh, and like now I'm kind of 13 stone. And I, you know, I think my normal kind of weight two years earlier had been kind of 11, 8 or something. So yeah. um, I wasn't so exactly it, healthy. Uh, it's like these grinders now that sort of like sit in front of the computer for 10 hours. How much of it, from your point of view, was a necessity because you had to like earn that money and it was a I chance. I just wanted to pay everyone back as quickly yeah. as possible. I was, I was ashamed and embarrassed to owe the money. Uh, sorry, I'm having a swig of tea. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I was, I was ashamed. I, I hated the way I'd reacted. Um, I'd, I'd told some lies to some friends about how quickly I could pay them and borrowed money off of them when I just didn't have any money and I didn't tell them that. 
I'm trying to burn it for a couple of people saying, oh, yeah, I just need it for a month or something. And uh, I didn't really have any kind of plan of how I was going to get it. Uh, I feel really awful about that. I wanted to pay everyone back really quickly. Um, I didn't want to have debts. Um, and once I could see that I was winning money quite quickly, uh, I, I did push it a little bit. I tried to win a little bit too quickly, but I, I probably got a bit lucky. I mean, I think I had some really good ideas on that, uh, some of which don't really work anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I was quite, it, it's kind of similar to poker in a way, you know, just finding little edges here and there, and mm-hmm. then constantly, constantly, constantly bashing away at them. And that's, you know, I say to people in poker all the time these days, people talk to me about being a pro poker player. And they're quite surprised at how much actual time I play poker. I mean, you know, if I'm... Obviously, these days I'm doing kind of TV poker and podcasts and magazine interviews and stuff. But, you know, when I'm doing the normal kind of thing of being a regular poker player, I turn up at the casino at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I play poker until 5, 6, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I don't miss hands. I don't go out to dinner in the middle of it. You know, when I travel to a tournament, if I get busted from the tournament, I sit down in a cash game and play for eight or ten hours because that's what being a professional poker player is. If I was a professional, uh, you know, plumber or something, I'd go and unblock seats for twelve hours. You know, yeah. it, 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 people sort of think that oh, they see the travelling, they see the the glamorous lifestyle and that, and they don't see. So watching training videos and reading articles and, and and physically turning up and playing hundreds and hundreds of hands of poker, which can be quite boring from time to time. Um, and and you know that was exactly the same with the sports betting. I uh, I I literally just had it. I had a small edge on pretty much every bet I had, and I just repeated and repeated and repeated uh, mm-hmm. until it worked in my favour. And I had variance. I had bad losses some days and uh, big. Big, real big wins other days, but mm. generally speaking, I, I had a small edge working for me, and uh, if it's a small edge working for you, you've just got to repeat the trial as many times as you can until, you know, you've got all the money. Um, mm. Yeah, I was a big player on Becker. I, w- I would have been one of their biggest customers that year, uh, probably even 2006. Um, and that carried on into 2007. Uh, and, and meantime, I, I did play some poker. I, like I said, I was playing a few drunken sessions in the VIP, and I did uh, I did go to the World Series. I, I, I cashed one year, I think, I can't remember actually, I think it was 81st, uh, something in that region. Anyway, I was quite deep. It was the year when Jerry Yang won. Um, wow. And uh, there was a guy called Hibbard Khan, who uh, was, I don't know if you remember him from the final. Yeah, the bulldozer. Yeah, he, jumped, he jumped up on the, on the chair and started screaming and shouting a few times. He's actually not yeah. a bad fellow. I've met him a few times since. Um, but, um, yeah, he got on TV and stuff, and he was in the final tape, and he won a lot of money. Uh, but he, if you, I don't know if you remember, he won a hand with about 200 people left, where he got all his money in the Queens, uh, and the other guy had aces, and he doubled up, and it carried him through the final table. He had roughly the same number of chips as I had when I got busted, uh, and I got all my money in the Queens against aces, and the guy's aces won. Um, so, you know, it doesn't take much uh, at that stage with only less than 100 people left, mm-hmm. you know, to go from, uh, I don't know, I think I got about $60,000 or something, um, and every time probably got like a million, uh, yeah. and a sponsorship deal with Focus Uh So, you know, it, it's on the turn of a card like that. Um, 
I, I don't know, I had quite a good trip over there, I enjoyed it, and uh, I came back and I got straight back into the, the sports betting. But actually, when I got back, it didn't really work so well. Some of the things I was doing just didn't seem to quite work as well as they had been. And that's a, you know, it's like poker, it's a game that's evolving. People are very clever, there's lots of people doing stuff with computers and robots and uh, spreadsheets and modeling and whatever. Uh, and and they'd probably figured out some of the things I was doing. Not not that you can see on Betfair who's doing what, but other yeah. people come up with ideas, and and everyone's working away at the same thing basically. Uh, excuse me, one sec. Okay. Ooh. Tea was getting cold. You can cut that bit out. So um, anyway, yeah. So like, I I came back and Betfair. It wasn't really working so well. I was pretty disgusted with myself when I saw a picture from Vegas and I realized how fat I'd become, uh, which I hadn't realized at all before. I don't know how I hadn't noticed how fat I'd become, but I had become quite fat. Uh, and I, I, I remember I went out for a run immediately. Uh, and if you're 17 stone and you run on the pavement, uh, what happens is your knee swells up, uh, which is what happened. Uh, my knee swelled, swelled up uh, like a tennis ball sticking out from my knee. Uh-huh. Um, and I went to the doctor, and he basically said, uh, how fat are you? And I said, I'm quite fat, and he weighed me and stuff. And he said, well, first of all, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Are those the trainers you were running? And I said, yeah. He said, well, they're terrible. Go and get some proper ones, uh, and don't run on the pavement until you've lost a bit of that weight, and uh, you know, start taking care of yourself. So I went off, and I thought, okay, that's a good idea. I'll lose some weight. So being a bit obsessive and crazy, um, I just didn't eat. I, I started having like three fasting days at average four and uh, having like a lettuce leaf and stuff. And, uh, uh, I literally lived on uh, one yogurt a day for a while and one Weetabix and uh, uh, lots of salad and, uh, you know, just when by salad, I just mean lettuce and cucumber. Um, yeah. And... Um, I did lose quite a lot of weight. I went from 17 down to about 14 in maybe seven weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, the people weren't doing all those big weight loss bets as much then. I wish, I wish I'd have been involved Get in that. Get a kind of cleaned up. Um, anyway, I started to feel a bit bad. I, my stomach was doing all kinds of bad things. I was in pain quite a lot of the time. Uh, and I was still going to the bit uh, after playing, after uh, sports betting sessions and uh, and playing a bit and, and drinking a lot of wine, and I thought there was got a lot of acidity in my diet. Uh, I was drinking loads of Coca-Cola and orange juice and stuff, all really mm-hmm. bad stuff. Um, and uh, I tried to cut out the Coca-Cola, and I, I thought, well, I'll just drink loads of orange juice instead, and that's actually quite bad for you, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was in a bit of a bad way, and I, I went to the doctor, and he couldn't really figure it out. Uh, so I went to another doctor and they couldn't figure it out. And this went on for a while. Uh, and then I went to the hospital one day to have some tests. Uh, and they couldn't really figure it out. Although it was quite worrying. The guy uh, did this kind of ultrasound scan. And I heard him say, oh, we need to speak to Mr. Peterson very urgently. Uh, can you get him in here? I've seen something uh, that I don't understand. And I could hear the man saying that. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, anyway, they came in and he said, well, I'll get back to you with the results. Uh, and this was over Christmas in uh, kind of 2007, 2008. 
was it 2006, 2007? Uh, anyway, uh, I, yeah, I was quite, it was all quite bad, and uh, I collapsed basically in the early New Year, and uh, uh, they took me to hospital. They did some tests on the way to hospital. My heart rate was at 50. I don't know whether you see on the TV poker things generally, it's at kind of 80 or 90, and yeah. uh, occasionally if someone's bluffing, it goes up to kind of 165, 170. Um, one of at 50. If it goes below 46, I think you're basically dead. Um, right. And they did some blood tests, and I had all kinds of massive white cells, which means that you're severely infected and your body's trying to fight off infections. Uh, and basically, they found that I had an enormous gallstone the size of a conker uh, that had kind of blocked up all the tubes that lead into your stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no acid could go into my stomach and burn up my food. Uh, the acid was all going back on my liver and my pancreas and uh, my gallbladder. Yeah. And uh, my pancreas was burning away. If you, uh, Your pancreas is like a sponge that regulates the amount of sugar in your bloodstream. Uh, yeah. And if it starts to go away, you get uh, diabetes. And if it goes more than 50%, you die. Uh, and it's not like your liver. If you're kind of George Best or something, your liver can grow back if you kind of or it heals itself. If you stop drinking for a year or something, you'll be okay. Uh, but your pancreas doesn't do that. Once it's gone, it's gone. So if I'd have lost much more of it, I'd have probably been diabetic, and, and then if it had gone on a couple more weeks, I'd have probably been dead. Uh, so they were quite lucky, really, that that, that I fell over, because uh, otherwise you know, they would probably never found out. Um, yeah. Well, I was quite lucky. Anyway, I got yeah. in the hospital, <laughs> and um, uh, I laid around in the hospital for a while. Uh, they put me on a bunch of drips. I didn't get to eat anything. I hadn't been eating anything anyway. I'd been in agony for weeks, and I, I'd hardly eaten for like two weeks. Uh, and uh, my weight went down to uh, nine stone three. So this was only like five months after I'd been seventeen ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I was lying on on a drip basically. I had morphine going in and out of me and various other things. And um, they were just kind of monitoring me and trying to keep me going. Uh, and then finally they said, well, okay, well, the infection's pretty much healed up now, so you can go home for a couple of weeks, then you have to come in and have your gallbladder taken out. So I did all that. Uh, that's a fairly kind of big operation. They said, right, now you can go home. Uh, in six months you'll have to lie in bed, and you'll feel really bad for six months. Uh, and they were right. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I just used to kind of sweat a lot, and it was pretty horrible. Mm. Anyway, after about six months of that, uh, a guy rang me up and said, uh, and, and the sports betting thing, in the midst of all that, I said to the other guy, let's just chop up the remaining money. This was in about the kind of uh, two months before I went into hospital. Uh, yeah. So we just chopped up the remaining money. I paid off debts with mine. I mean, I had 365000 worth of debts, and my share of what I'd got out of the sports betting was roughly speaking 280. So I was still in debt. You know, I was, I was actually about 100 grand in debt now. But uh, instead of owing like 40 different people and, and banks and credit cards and stuff, uh, I just owed five people uh, about 20 grand each. And they were all largely millionaires. And they were all people I'd owed more than 20 grand to before. Uh, and I'd been gradually, you know, they'd had a little bit off me. So they were all a lot more comfortable with life now. And I told them that I was going to gradually pay the rest of them off. Uh, and they were all kind of back on friendly terms again with me. So it was, it was all a lot better. Uh, mm-hmm. But I didn't have any money. I mean, I'd, I hadn't kind of saved a little pot for myself. I'd, every time I'd got money, uh, my five grand I took out every week, four of it would go to, to paying off the people. 
uh, I'd pay 8 to some people 500 and, and the other 1,000 would go uh, 500 for me living and 500 uh, for uh, my uh, my business partner in the sports business. So I, I hadn't saved anything up and, uh, and a friend of mine um, who was one of my uh, creditors called me up from Hong Kong and said, well, even though uh, you took so long to pay me what you owed me, uh, I'm going to send you five grand back because uh, you're not a bad bloke and uh, I heard you're a bit poorly. Uh, so he sent me five grand and said, there you go, that'll keep you going for a while uh, and hopefully you can do something with that. And um, I, I said, well, that's brilliant, thanks very much. And uh, I thought, right, okay, I've got five grand to my name. And in fact, I had two grand other than that, so I've got seven grand to my name. I can't really do this sports thing on my own. I asked my partner if he wanted to start again and maybe we'd put seven grand each in or something. And he said, well, actually, I'm a bit strapped at the moment. Uh, even though we made quite a bit of money out of it before, I just don't really have enough to invest. So I thought, right, fair enough. Um, and uh, I thought, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've got seven grand uh, to do it, whatever it is. And uh, I need to, I've got a sort of 100 grand worth of debt. So I need to get up out of this bed and, and start doing something. So um, <clears throat> I started going to the VIP because poker had always been there in the background. and. Uh, I liked it, and I felt like it was something I could win. It felt like it was low volatility. It wasn't something where I was going to just lose seven grand in one go. So uh, I, I started. They, uh, in those days, in two, this was in 2008, I think it must have been uh, 2007. 2007. I um, they had a, they had an afternoon tournament every day, uh, and it would be like 30 pounds rebuy one day and fifty pound freeze out the next day and eighty pound freeze out the next day and so on and so forth. And uh the Monday one was always quite good, always get like forty or fifty runners. Uh and a couple of the other ones would, would only be kind of thirty or something. I just played it every day. I went every I went, I was pretty poorly when I first started going. I was, I had uh, from from my health troubles I had all kinds of internal bruising and I'd had internal bleeding and I had scars and, and bruises and stuff. Uh, and like acid burns and all over my stomach and everything like that. I mean, internally, uh, if someone had punched me at the time, I probably could have been in quite serious trouble. Uh, so I had to be always nice to people at the table. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I started playing these small tournaments. I was playing largely with, um, you know, it, it was funny. I used to I used to joke about the kind of people that turned up for them. They were they were definitely people that didn't add a lot to the, the British economy. They were either uh, very wealthy and didn't really have much to do, uh, or retired, uh, or a black economy, just, you know, people that, uh, uh, you know, never really fitted into society and hadn't really paid too much tax and didn't have a national insurance number, um, or people that were just kind of self-employed, you know, taxi drivers and um, people that work in bars and stuff like that, um, yeah. and villains as well. There was a few, uh, there was a few kind of shoplifters and uh, fraudsters and uh, a bank robber and a couple of other people like that. So, um, yeah, it was a funny game to play it in, really. Um, a combination, because, you know, there's one or two kind of millionaires and eccentrics and TV personalities turn up and played in these games occasionally. Uh, but I was I was probably the best player, I guess. I used to win, uh, I'd win at least one tournament a week. It was kind of, and I'd play five or, I'd play seven a week, actually. I had them at the weekends as well. Uh, yeah. The weekend one would get like 90, 90 players. They'd have a thirty pound one on a Saturday, 
And John Duffy would play that. And I'll tell you another person who would play that quite regularly. Um, and he was, uh, that was his first foray into poker, was Luke Schwartz, who used to play in those. And, uh, All right. Uh, I played with him dozens of times in those 30 pound ones. And Paz Banzi as well in, in earlier times. Uh, they'd have mm-hmm. a monthly 500 one. And as I, as I started to recover and get a bit of a tank together, uh, I started playing the monthly 500 one. And, and I first became aware of Praz uh, a few years earlier in the monthly 500 one, um, in, in maybe in 2004, when he made the final. We both made the final three consecutive months. And the first month, I didn't take much notice of him. The second month, I asked him his name. And by the third month, I'd forgotten it because it wasn't... Uh, you know, he wasn't called Dave, yeah. um, <laughs> and I couldn't remember Praz. And then by the fourth time I saw him, I, I knew, because I thought, well, I've got to remember this kid's name, because, you know, he's actually the best player I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we, we we got friendly through that. But, um, yeah, Luke was Luke was always quite lively when he came along to that 30-pound one. And he used to take the mickey out of me, because... Uh, yeah, by by that time, because of I was starting to get money again because of the sports betting and stuff. I had uh, I had actually started playing a few TV tournaments and uh, uh, you know being a bit more on the scene in Vegas. I'd played a lot more events and I'd cashed and had gone deep in the main and stuff. So people kind of thought of me as a bit of a kind of a sort of I don't know celebrity poker player, a bit of a cracky term, but I you know that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I used to kind of take the piss a bit about what are you doing playing in this 30 pound tournament and obviously the real reason was because I was skint and I was trying to get some money <laughs> together uh, and I used to just kind of say well I like the tournament and whatever and I was I was ill as well, I was still quite ill, I mean I'd, I'd only been out of hospital five or six months uh, yeah. and I was taking, like, when I first got out of hospital I had about 20 different tablets I was on every, every single day you know, just like, I had to take like seven different kinds of tablets um, and I would fall asleep and stuff. I'd be done in by eight o'clock in the evening. I slept like fourteen hours a day. Uh, so these afternoon tournaments were great. They started at two o'clock. They finished at six o'clock. Uh, and then as I got a bit stronger, I might go and sit in the cash game after the tournament, maybe. Uh, and we played quite small then in the week. It was like three, three holding pot limit. Uh, so I could afford that. I'd sit down with uh, you know eight hundred pounds or nine hundred pounds or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, the pots were kind of sort of sixty quid or one hundred and fifty quid, and somebody was you know if you flop the set, you might win three hundred pounds on someone or something like that. But yeah. uh, I was I was quietly starting to build up my role again, and um, yeah, I did that for a year basically. And by the end of the year, um, I was really quite all right. I stopped playing the tournaments every single day. They they kind of fizzled out the tournaments. I think the Vic got fed up with doing them and they didn't have them every single day. Uh, and it got to a stage where, uh, far from like falling asleep at 8 p.m. Uh, and not feeling well and having to go home, I started to get a bit stronger and I could stay until 9 and 10 and then midnight. And the Vic used to close them. They'd stop poker at 5 5 a.m. So I just got to a stage where I'd arrive at 2 2 p.m., play the tournament, and I'd be there until 5 a.m. And that was every day. And I literally did that. Uh, In 2007, I did that 320 days of the year. Uh, And, you know, I just never took... The only time I took to to take off was to go to Vegas. Uh, And I went for the World Series for, like, the whole five weeks or something that year. Um... And then, uh, yeah, 2008 came around. I'm pretty sure the Irish Open was in 2008. It's 
silly I might. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. I think it so was. 2008 came around. So now by now, my tank is 100 grand. Uh, I've more or less paid everyone back. The 100 that I owe now looks like there's just one guy. I owe him 24,000 and I've got 100 in the bank. So I actually could just pay him. Uh, but we're playing quite a lot bigger games now and I kind of thought, well, if I pay him and have a big downswing, I'm left with nothing again and I don't mm-hmm. think I can start again from nothing. I just can't do it. It's mentally, mentally killing me. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, he seems happy enough. I'm paying him. I was paying him like a grand a month or two grand a month or something like that. And I thought, I'll tell you what, I'm going to try and do If I have a good world series, uh, I'm going to pay him like 10 grand in one go, which I think I did. And then I, I owed him like 20 odd grand anyway. And I, and it got to, it was coming up to Christmas, and I, I think it was my 40th birthday. I said, by the time I'm 40, I want to have paid the last person. I want to make that a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I did it. The week before my 40th birthday, uh, which was December 2007, I, um, I paid him I don't know, 10 grand or something, which was the last bit of money. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd done it. I'd, I'd paid him, you know, I'd gone from being, I probably had at my peak when we were doing the horse race syndicate, maybe 900 grand. I'd gone to minus three six five, and now I was back to plus a hundred, uh, and I, you know, paid everyone off. Uh, mm. And of course, along the way, lots of people bloody owed me money. I never got paid, you know, money from people. You know, this is one of the things about gambling. People do borrow money all the time, and uh, yeah. most people just have zero intention of giving it back, which is pretty horrible, but it mm. happens. Um, anyway, I um. I was very happy. I life was good. I was feeling a lot better about myself. Uh, I'd, I'd got the weight back on a little bit. You know, I'd come out of hospital nine stone three. I, I was now just whenever I weighed myself, I was always twelve four, uh, mm-hmm. and I felt happier. Uh, I just was enjoying life a bit more. I was going out to dinner and having a social life and having fun and just you know. But I was still playing a shitload of poker. I mean, like, really, you know, the Vic was, was massively important to me. I was I was there all the time. You know, I would turn up and, you know, I don't have to ask for a cup of tea. Somebody would bring it immediately as soon as I walked in. Uh, mm. I knew the business of all the staff in the place. Uh, I knew who was going out with who and who was talking to who and who had a row with who and who got, uh, who got in trouble last week because they turned up late or, you know, because it's a gossipy incestuous place and everyone yeah. was talking and, you know, all the locals and the regulars and the pros, I knew who was winning and who was losing and who owed who and who was accused of cheating and who was you know, doing dodgy dealings and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And it was, I like all that, you know, it was, it was a, it was a little soap opera and I really enjoyed yeah. that. Um, and yeah, I was, now I was starting to play some more TV poker. Uh, we were doing that, uh, that kind of big game thing with, uh, uh Matrian, you know, and, uh, I, I was like a big feature of that. Uh, so people were now starting to, I was, I'd been writing the column in the bluff magazine for a few years um mm-hmm. people are coming up and saying you know do you want to uh, possibly be my agent because i'm thinking of getting a deal and full sort of offered me this and i don't really know whether that's a good amount uh mm-hmm. and so i was kind of thinking about that 
I started backing people. You know, I was hanging around a tournament one day, and James Aidenhead, who who I love, and I'd known from the time he started playing, came up to me, and he was looked a bit fed up, and I said, "What's up?" And he said, "Well, I just can't believe what these people are doing to me. I keep busting out of tournaments and this guy." And then he was trying to do sophisticated plays on people that didn't really understand and just looked at their own two cards. And yeah. we had some conversations about poker and whatever. And, uh, you know, he's a very good guy. Um, and I said to him, you're going to play this tournament next week. And he said, and, and, and Sonny as well, Sonny Chatter. And he, he, well, they both said, no, well, we can't, you know, it's too big. Uh, right. And it was a fun festival at the Ritz. So I said, well, okay, uh, it sounds like you're playing them. And here's the money, go and buy it. Uh, so they went and bought in, and we did a deal, and suddenly I'm staking them. So I staked them for a few months, and they didn't really do any good for a few months, but they played quite a lot of tournaments. And then uh, finally they kind of got me out of it. They had a couple of wins, uh, or James, James mostly, uh, and funny, funny eventually. Uh, they both did very well in the end, um, and I, I made quite a lot of money out of them. But as I started doing it, I... Um, I started to increase the number of people. I, you know, more and more people kept asking me, I hear that you put people into tournaments, why don't you put me in, and blah, blah. And after the first four or five, I thought, I can't just randomly do this. So keeping a record of all the uh, the transactions and the spreadsheet of how they're doing and knowing who's winning and losing is just too difficult. Mm. It's, uh, it's too much. Too much work. <laughs> distractingly from my own game. Uh, and... Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a bit awkward. So I thought, well, look, actually, I'd sort of seen what Bad Beat were doing with their idea of kind of staking people as long as they play on a certain site and they get to keep some yeah. of it late. And I did stake a guy to play on full tilt, and I, I was getting the rate back and he was getting the profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that worked for a while, and then he lost all the money one day. And mm. so I didn't really make any money out of it, uh, which is pretty annoying. Uh, but I sort of thought, well, if I could do it in a more structured way, this could work quite well. But I need to be careful about who I, which people I pick and whatever. And I sort of felt like a lot of the tournaments were quite soft at the time, and I wanted to have a punt on people in them. Uh, and I just sort of saw a way to do that. So I started thinking about that quite early on uh, in 2008 and maybe late 2007. And it was kind of an idea kind of forming in the back of my head. And I also thought, like, people were saying to me, you should make trading videos, or maybe you could do more TV commentary, or maybe you could write a book. And I thought, well, it would be quite good to kind of bring some of those things together in some kind of business entity. Uh, I also was thinking about employing an assistant, just because now, any time I was spending away from either the vehicle sports betting, doing things like keeping admin and stuff of all the people I was backing was just wasted time. I, you know, an hour of doing that just wasn't making me as much as, as, as I could make out of an hour of sitting in the VIP. Uh, yeah. And now the games in the VIP were getting bigger. You know, we were playing uh, 5, 10, no limit, uh, sometimes 10, 25, and I'd be sitting in a game with uh, maybe, you know, 8,000 or 10,000 or 12,000 most days, and uh, I was getting to a stage where I would win 70% of the time, uh, and if I won, it would be sort of three to 5,000, and if I lost, it would be two to 3,000, that was happening like mm-hmm. 30% of the time. So, you know, I was making quite a lot of money out of it, and my hourly rate was very high, 
Um, so it didn't make any sense to be spending time at home, uh, you know, dealing with normal day-to-day admin. I mean, but I did pay somebody else to do that. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was kind of having all these kind of ideas. And I've been to the Irish Open a couple of times before, and I, I used to travel around and play the old tournament. Not too many EPTs. I, I, I went quite close in the EPT London uh, that Ricky Corrin won. I, I, I got a really bad beat for a massive pot 13 handed and, and went out about 10 minutes later with another bad beat. So, you know, I had sort of some form, I guess, in the OC. I never really done much in the EPT. But I haven't really played that many. And then well, the Irish Open was one I'd enjoyed. Uh, in the past, and I'd done okay in the EPT Dublin when it was there. I'd kind of gone deepish in that, the one that Roland won. And, uh, you know, I'd lost a big pot on day two just outside the money, and I sort of thought, I've got a shot in these things. So I went to the, the Irish Open thinking, well, this will be a good tournament, but, you know, if, if I ever get busted, um, you know, the cash games are normally good. And uh, by now, we were regularly playing, you know, quite big in London, occasionally 25-50, and often 10 most days 10-25. So, uh, and, and sitting with 20 or 30 grand. Uh, so I'd built up, you know, pretty quickly. The stakes had been going up, and, up, and I'd been pushing to raise the stakes all the time and encourage bigger players to come into the bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I went to Ireland that year thinking, well, you know, it's all about the cash games. If I make 30, 40 grand over the weekend playing cash, I'll be absolutely delighted. And suddenly I'm in the tournament um, with four tables to go, uh, and I'm losing a pot to leave me with 42,000 when the blinds are 510 with 1,000 ante. Um, And uh, I go from there to, uh, you know, maybe 12 people left. I've got... uh, four times the average and I can afford to just set people in on every single hand. Uh, I think I raised like 12 consecutive unopened pots at one stage. Um, and uh, yeah, I went to the final table with um, about 50% of the chips uh, on a six-handed final. And, uh, and obviously I won the tournament, which was 808,000 euros. So uh, suddenly I've, I've gone from... Um, you know, minus 365, 18 months earlier, uh, or maybe two, two and a half years earlier now, uh, to, to having 100 grand, to having a million again. So, yeah. is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's pretty crazy poker that you, uh, especially tournaments, you know, you like if you play cash games, you, you can work out what your alley rate is, and you keep yeah. away, and you nick a bit here, and you nick a bit there, and everything's good. But if you play tournaments, you, you, you should still think in the same way. You should work mm-hmm. out... I think Daniel Nagani wrote actually quite a good piece about it a couple of years ago, how you can work out your hourly rate in tournaments. But you should really sit down and say, OK, this tournament, uh, you know, on average, I'm going to get knocked out after X hours. And then, you know, you can sort of think about when you sit down, mm-hmm. you should think, right, I'm earning you know, 40 quid this hour or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then the is day when so you win 100 grand, it? it's just getting three years' wages in one go. Yeah, but how do you quantify, you know, like, you know, something well, like Well, you these... can work out your ROI and you can look at the buy-in of the tournament and if you know that you're 
you know, twice as good as a player in the tournament and your thousand pounds is worth two thousand pounds. Uh and on average when you play that tournament you get knocked out after eight hours. Uh well now you can say that you're getting paid hundred and twenty pounds an hour. I mean it's all a bit, a bit kind of random and uh, guessy. But the the point is that you have to get into the mindset of thinking I'm sitting here earning an hourly rate. If if you're mm-hmm. one of these people that just lose, 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 you know, tournaments generally, your pattern is lose, 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 win massive, lose, 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 min cash, yeah. lose, lose, yeah. lose, lose, min and a half cash. Um, and what you need to do is on the day that you win massive, you've got to keep your feet on the ground and think, okay, what's just happened here is I got my wages for all those days when I didn't get paid. Yeah. Uh, and not think, oh, brilliant! I'm going to buy a yacht because you've got <laughs> you're going to have uh, you know another 200 days or 300. You know you're not going to win an EPT very often. Uh, yeah. Most, well, no yeah. one's ever won two, so you know obviously yeah. it's pretty difficult. Um, you uh, you know you you need to have that, and I was quite good at that. I didn't really you know when I won it, I didn't jump around. There's a picture of me literally as I won it where I've kind of got my arms outstretched. And actually, I just did that because I thought, if I don't show any emotion, people are going to think I'm a really <laughs> miserable bastard and I don't care and I don't deserve the money. Um, and I did care, and I cared massively, and I was very excited. But actually, yeah. all I really wanted to do was kind of ring up my parents and you know chat to friends and stuff. I didn't really want to be like jumping. I don't want to rub the second guy's face in it. Uh, you know, I had half the chips. I'm supposed to win. I'm the most experienced player on the table, and mm-hmm. uh, I had half the chips. <clears throat> it's just another day at the office, you know. Really, although it's a lot of money, and I was quite excited when we actually got heads up. I remember thinking, this is actually quite a life-defining moment. If I fuck this up somehow, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, it's 440 for second, and it's 800 for the winner. Um, I'm going to be pretty pissed off with myself if I yeah. screw it up, you know, through a mistake. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, like, you know, I had a bit of a chip lead, uh, and I was thinking, well, look, you know, you've got a bit of a chip lead. You've got to, you've got to read. I played quite conservatively heads up and defensively. There was a hand where it came at 8-8, uh, and I had jack-8, and we didn't get it. And he had an 8 as well, and we didn't get all the money in. Uh, because I actually thought, well, you know, if by some remarkable thing he's got eight eight here, I could do the whole lot. And I'm pretty sure he's got an eight the way the mm-hmm. betting's gone. And you could easily have seven eight or nine eight or something, but it, it looks like he's got an eight. Uh, I can't remember what he did have now, maybe ten eight. Uh, but uh, I just thought, well, look, I'm chipping away at him. Let's not, let's not inflate this to be a massive pot and then I lose one big pot and lose the whole thing. Uh, mm-hmm. let, me, let me just take a chunk of his chips here and then just keep grinding away. And that was yeah. basically because I was thinking this is so massive. Also, I think the title's quite big. Roland de Wolf rung me up um, just before the final phase, literally before I went on, and said, you cannot possibly explain or have a comprehension of how important winning this title is compared with coming second. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, you know, like a lot of people take the piss out of me now and say, you know, I'm a bit of a one-hit, one-guy, one-one tournament. And, you know, people <laughs> in America will say things like, oh, did you win the Irish Open? Because that's the only thing they really know about me. 
Um, yeah. But it was quite a defining thing. You know, it's, it's a pretty big thing. Not many people have won $1.2 mm. million dollars in a poker tournament. Um, it's funny you mentioned Roland DeVille. Mm. I, I had Roland on the podcast. And yeah. I actually spoke... I've always wanted to get yourself on, you know... I, and I spoke with Roland about tournament poker, just like in dealing with the variance, like yeah. you say, you know, lose, 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 etc. And I said, it surprises me someone like like yourself. I asked what your sort of motivation about yourself, Neil Channon. I said that. Yeah, playing tournaments, you know, why do I play? Yeah, I just thought like from your, you know, you're, you're famous for, you know, like you say, sitting in the vet, grinding at the cash games. Mm. You, you know you've got an edge, you know you can pull it in. I wondered how much of it was like you say, quantifying tournaments in an hourly rate and saying, I've got an edge, or how much of it was maybe sort of, like you say, the title or the glory? Well, a little bit of that. I mean, also, um, you know, when I went to Ireland, you know, it's also quite boring going in the every single day for 320 days a year, and you yeah. can break it up a bit via tournaments. Secondly, I kind of had it in my mind that I might do some kind of poker business, and uh, I sort of thought, well, you know, if I could kind of do well in the rankings and stuff or do well in a TV thing, that might be really quite good for the site. Yeah. Uh, and thirdly, uh, you know, I could just see, you know, well, I'm not a terrible tournament player. I don't think I'm that good. But, uh, you know, I could definitely see when I was just playing small tournaments in London that I could compete. I, I was capable uh, of beating the average small tournament player. So I thought, well, yeah. if I focus on the tournaments where you're getting to play against really bad players, uh, like, for example, the World Series main event, um, then that's okay. I don't really fancy the EPTs that much because I think there's some excellent, excellent specialist professional tournament players playing them. They're also played mm -hmm. in a slightly different style. Um, you know, people play crazy aggressive pre-flop, uh, whereas if you mm -hmm. go to Ireland, say, uh, and play a tournament. Although people are quite crazy, um, generally the mistake that they're making is they're calling a lot. Um, whereas if you had to uh, characterise a mistake that uh, people were making in, uh, say, uh, it, uh, some of the some of the Scandinavian players, for example, um, they're, they're, they're just not adapting very well to how the other person is playing. They they mm -hmm. tend to just think that all situations are standard because they're repeating things that they've done on the internet. And they're forgetting that they're dealing with real human beings. And if that guy four bets you, um, and he's uh, he's raised on the cutoff, and you three mm. bets him from the blinds, and now he four bets you, you might think, well, I've played this situation online a million times, and ace jack is a very standard shove here because mm. his range is wide open because he raised in late position. Uh, you're forgetting that actually um, he travelled a long way to come to this tournament from another country. Uh, and he has some kind of emotional involvement and attachment in the tournament, and he doesn't want to get knocked out because his wife is standing there. Uh, and he's going to play yeah. differently than he would have done if it was an online tournament and he could just buy into another one in 10 minutes' time. Uh, yeah. So I think the mistakes that people make in tournaments are, uh, can be slightly different. I think the edge that you have from uh, recognizing that a player is overly aggressive is not that big because actually if you're going to make a mistake, being too aggressive is not too much of a mistake because it's hard to exploit that mistake. The, the way to exploit it is to call more often and if you call more often, you just have to play showdowns and, and you're going to have to win those showdowns. It's, it's all very well to say, I know that guy's bluffing a bit, uh, I'm just going to call with King Jack because that's ahead of his range and then, oh, okay, he was bluffing, he's got ace three, he's really overplayed that ace three. 
Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're still playing a 55, 45 for all the chips or something. Uh, that's not, you know, it's not that easy to exploit that. If uh, if you're in, in Ireland and you're in a situation where this guy just, I'm not knocking your eyes, by the way, it's a bit of a, you could say the same with France. Um, you know, maybe it's a national characteristic that people call a bit too much. Well, obviously, you can batter them slowly and surely by just keep raising often when they're out of position, they call, uh, and then if they just give up on the flop a lot, uh, well, you know, obviously just raising a lot and sea betting uh, is mm-hmm. going to be a successful strategy. Uh, and it's yeah. much easier to benefit from that kind of thing. So I kind of focused on the tournaments where I could have an edge like that, and I went to France for a couple of tournaments, um, and I went to Ireland for a few tournaments, uh, and I went yeah. to, uh, you know, obviously the World Series and stuff. Uh, but I don't want to be, like, checking around playing tournaments all the time, because, like you say, in terms of uh, hourly rate, I, I think most people, if they can play cash games, they'd be better served in the long run, uh, just sitting yourself in a cash game and, and putting the 10 hours a day in. Uh, yeah. And if I did, if I played 10 hours a day of tournaments every every year, uh, and then did that for five years, and then the next five years, 10 hours a day of cash games, I'm absolutely certain, 100%, that I would make way, way, way more money uh, in the cash games. And that doesn't mean to say that I'm way, way, way better in the cash games. Uh, mm-hmm. I might be. I don't really know. Uh, but I just think there's more money in the cash game. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess people, some people play tournaments because they say, well, I'm better at tournaments, my skills are more there, which I find quite amusing because often it just means they've run quite good in the tournament so far. Uh, mm-hmm. Tournaments have such enormous variance. If someone's losing in cash and winning in tournaments, probably all that really proves is that they're a losing player who just happens to have run quite good in tournaments. Uh, and yeah. in two years' time, they probably won't be playing poker anymore because uh, the variants will spin around and they'll be just losing in both, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they won't be able to afford to play anymore. And I, I get there's a lot of people writing to me all the time saying, "Yeah, I don't, I don't really play cash. I'm more of a tournament player." And that just means yeah, I've run good in tournaments recently. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, it is a fact that most people lose at gambling. I mean, in any form of yeah. gambling. Uh, if it was very easy, everyone would be doing it. I used to say that a lot and make a joke and say, oh, actually, it's poker, yeah, everyone is doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I do see hundreds and hundreds of people every week telling me that they're professional poker players, and I know for a fact there probably aren't a thousand people that make 20 grand a year the last three years consistently. Um, mm-hmm. and, and 20 grand a year is not a particularly brilliant salary. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's tough. It's, it's hard. Um, anyway, yeah, just so bringing you up to date on the story, obviously the, the, the story then is all about Black Belt Poker, really. I don't know how long yeah. uh, you want me to wrap well, it on for. I could go on two, about that for three days, but yeah. There's two things I've got left on the list to mention. The mm. first one's Phil Lack. Mm. Uh, he's no, he notoriously uh, loves every time he's in London and stuff, he tweets and he's always on, you know, on about Channing and stuff. And mm. Phil Lack's one of these guys that, you know, as a personal hero, a bit like yourself, the the sort of story of like he went totally broke and bounced back and stuff. So, if you maybe give us like a, a Phil Lack story, talk a little bit about oh, your friendship with a Phil. Specific one. I, I I like Phil a lot. Um, he's a really good guy. Um, I I I can tell you how I come to know Phil Lack. Um, 
I have a friend, the guy who introduced me to um, uh, Stu Younger, actually, is a friend of mine from New York who I've known uh, for probably 15 years, uh, who I haven't spoken to, actually, for ages. Um, so uh, you remind me now, I should probably contact him. Um, and, yeah, he he used to be um, hanging around in the Mayfair Club, which is uh, a famous place that uh, happened in uh, New York in the um, yeah. turn of the century. Um, and basically, the May- Mayfair Club was a was a backgammon club. Uh, there was a bit of chess going on, uh, and there was a poker game there. They had a couple of tables, and they would rake the games. Uh, and people would come primarily to play backgammon, and some to play poker, and some to just hang out and play chess. And it was a kind of a funny place where people who were just kind of dropped out of society a little bit would hang around. Uh, and a whole bunch of people used to go there regularly. Uh, Steve Zilotto, who um, is a, quite a kind of well-known player, he wrote um, yeah. a book about high-low. Who's uh, you know had some amazing tournament uh, results over the years. Uh, he was he was quite a regular in the games there. Um, Eric Seidel used to play there all the time, and uh, yeah. he kind of learned his trade there. Uh, Howard Lederer turned up one day, uh, having quit or finished university without really having a job, and just used to hang around there and meet the people and talk to them about backgammon and chess and poker. Um, mm-hmm. And he used to play in the games uh, with whatever money he could scrounge together. And then he would lose his money, and he would uh, basically sleep on the floor in the club and uh, earn money by just kind of running out to the shop to get cigarettes for people and tidying up the club and just you know yeah. hanging out. And he kind of slept on a sofa there, and uh, yeah, he was a big regular. And then one day this kid turned up, um, he was slightly younger than all the other people there, who was Phil Lark. So he, that's how he kind of got into poker. But my friend Steve was quite a big uh, backgammon player. Uh, at the time and sort of hung around that scene and knew all those people um, and uh, he he said to me one day, you know, he was telling me about this guy Phil Lark and um, that was kind of at the time when Phil started to get kind of famous in poker and he was being on TV wearing his hoodie and people calling him Unabomber and uh, whatever. I remember I, I sat back to back with him on the uh, he was on the table behind me in the World Series main event in 2004 when Greg Raymore won uh, Raymond was actually on the table just across from us, and Phil had kings against aces about 20 minutes into the tournament, uh, and he went down to kind of 1800, and oh, didn't we hear about that? You know, he was going on about it for ever and ever and ever, because he fought back, and he got himself right back to 10,000, and uh, yeah, we sat there, you know, he was on the table behind me up the whole day, and uh, I lasted the day, I think I finished the day with roughly my starting stack, and we didn't knock out a single person on my table uh, the whole day. And uh, um, Greg Raymer's table, they knocked out like 23 people, and he got he finished the day with like 60,000. I think for like 13. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I had to listen to Phil all day, and I, I had the pleasure actually of listening to him all day. It was, it was funny. I, I I thought I like this guy; he's very engaging, um, and. Um, yeah, a year later, I was in Vegas, and Steve owed me some money. Uh, and he said to me, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get someone to, to run it over to uh, the horseshoe, uh, and they'll just come and meet you and give you the money. He said, the, the guy will be in the sports book. Uh, actually, this, uh, this was years before, actually. Yeah, this was before I ever played in the main event with him. Uh, I think this must have been in kind of 96 or something. So it was quite early, maybe 96, mm-hmm. 7, 8. Uh, 
Oh, yeah, this is, oh, this is coming back to me now. I was quite broke. That's right. I went broke in Vegas. I lost my money playing blackjack or something. Uh, and I had a friend with me, and he borrowed money off of me. Now he's, he'd lost that, or he couldn't give it back to me. So he didn't have any money between us. And I said, well, I'll ring up Steve in New York. He'll sort this out. So I called him up. He said, okay, uh, I'm going to get this guy to give you five grand. Uh, go to the sports book and hang out, and he'll just turn up. And I said, well, how am I going to know what he looks like? He said, well, he's called Phil. He'll be the loudest guy in the room. Uh, he'll probably be wearing something outlandish, and he's told me he's going to be wearing red trousers. So uh, <laughs> we hung around in the sports book, and then uh, this guy Phil turned up with the red trousers, and um, we just hung out with him for about half an hour. I mean, he told us a few stories and stuff. And we both thought he was very, very funny, and he gave us some money, which was great. And uh, we were joking about it after. I said to my friend Leslie, he was the other guy, I said, you know, he's like Father Christmas, isn't he? He just showed up with his red trousers, and it's just like money <laughs> from the air, you know. And I, yeah. I said, we just ring up Steve, and he just brings money, and we've got money now. And uh, I said, it's pretty sweet, isn't it? Anytime we ever go boat, we can come to Vegas, we can ring up Steve in New York, and uh, and Phil will turn up with 5000 Anyway, nice. um... Probably, you know, I don't know when, 2004, 5, I, I can't even remember. I played a TV thing called the William Hill Grand Prix, which was a, a tournament um, yeah. on Channel 4, which they filmed in Cardiff. Uh, and I went down there um, to play my heat, and I got busted quite quickly in my heat. Uh, and the people that were running the, the show said to me, well, why don't you hang around? Because uh, a lot of the guys like to bet on the heat. And, uh, you know, you can kind of just hang out and be around the studio and stuff and take bets. So I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I, uh, I hung around and, you know, just to watch the show. And there was a lot of people, there were a lot of the players just hanging around and hanging out. So uh, that used to happen then. Everyone's too busy now. They've all got schedules and stuff and management yeah. and things. But they, well, people would go to these TV things and just hang around for the whole week and watch every heat. There'd be all kinds of side betting and stuff like that. Anyway, so I hung out, and the final came up, and I watched the final, and uh, Phil Lark won the final. And just, just as he won it, I happened to get a phone call from Steve from New York. Uh, and uh, Phil was over on his own, and he didn't really know any of the other players that well. He was less well-known than he is now. And he was really excited about winning. It was the biggest thing I was ever won. It was about 100,000 English, 120 or something. And he, um, he said to me, well... Um, you know, I, 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 I'm very excited about winning. And I said, well, there's a guy on the phone who wants to talk to you. And I handed him my phone, uh, and it was Steve. And he, spoke, he hadn't spoken to him for 10 years. And uh, he was, or five years or something, a long time. Anyway. He was very excited anyway. And, uh, and he was amazed that, you know, I knew Steve and stuff. And, you know, it's a mm -hmm. small world. And, and then we, that kind of made a little bond between us. And we became friends after that, really. And... Uh, I'd never really spoken to Phil that much before then, apart from when he mm -hmm. delivered me the five grand. And then, now, yeah, when he's in London, we always, like, hook up and stuff. And uh, Jennifer did a play here a couple of years ago, which meant she stayed in London for uh, three or four months rehearsing and then uh, performing. I went to see the play a couple of times. It was very good. And, uh, yeah, during that time, we just hung out and went to dinner. And uh, He came and did a, a boot camp for Blackbird. It was, uh, like, a two-day training weekend, and he came and... We did a really good one where uh, we did one of our gradings when we had a whole bunch of the young kids uh, trying to see if they could test out and go to Vegas. And mm -hmm. one of the training things we do is we showed them all 
some TV poker hands, and I asked them to comment on how the people had played in the hands and how they should have played and uh, whether they made any mistakes or whatever. So um, I said, well, okay, here's the hand, and it was Phil Lott. I, I don't know, you probably remember the hand. He, it was a hand against third, and he kind of made a complete cock-up of uh, and he had an ace jack. I think it was against Spurs. And it might have been Patrick. He tried to bluff it anyway. He, against uh, Patrick. Against, against Patrick. Patrick yeah. put him about a pair or something. Yeah, right? he yeah. lost about 80,000 in his hand. So I said, uh, put your hand up if you uh, if you think that Phil Lott has played the hand badly. And then afterwards, I'm going to get you to explain what, what he should have done and where he went wrong with his line. So if you can just keep your hand in the air if you think he's a complete moron. Uh, and everybody had their hand up. And then, of course, I got Phil to kind of jump out from behind the screen. Yeah. And he bought a packet of these kind of uh, celebrations, you know, the little chocolates with the Mars bars and yeah. whatever. And he went around, he handed a sweet to everybody that had their hand up and said, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. I played it like a moron. And uh, uh, if you haven't got your hand up, you made a mistake today because I am a moron. And, uh, yeah. He was great. He really had, and the kids loved it. They were like, you know, like, oh, my God, it's so a lot. Um, so no, he's very funny. I like him a lot. Um, yeah. I, I should speak to him more. I, I had an email from him two weeks ago. And I haven't even replied yet. So that's that. But uh, well, yeah, I, I haven't, I, haven't I, this summer at the World Series, he, we didn't, our polls didn't cost so much. He, he was playing different games to me. He's been playing, uh, the year before, he played a lot of cash games at the World Series. This year, he played a few more tournaments. But I wasn't playing any cash at all. And uh, he was playing mixed game tournaments, and I was playing uh, Holden tournaments. So he was doing the, the evening shift, and I was doing the afternoon. And I was always out before he'd even started his tournament this year. So I didn't mm-hmm. see too much of him. But... Uh, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. I like him a lot. Yeah. So let's talk about Black Belt then. Okay. Um, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you how it, how it came about. I mean, it was all those things. I said I was writing a column. I was thinking about, you know, people asking me about training, which I was kind of reluctant to get into. Um, yeah. I was definitely doing a lot of staking, which I wanted to continue. Uh, I was thinking about getting some kind of secretary or something, and I thought maybe if I had a business, that, that could kind of pay for all of that. Um, and yeah, there was a million things going on. I won the Irish Open, and I was being sponsored by a company. Um, I had to wear those horrible red shirts all the time mm. with the white sleeves. Um, mm. And uh, they said to me, "Well, look, we're actually thinking about selling the company," uh, and they wanted a ridiculous amount of money for it. And I didn't really fancy that. Uh, and I sort of had been talking to Praz and Carl and, and James and uh, Sonny about possibly doing something with the hit squad and they were some of them were sponsored by Blue Square and some of them weren't sponsored at all. Uh, mm-hmm. and then some of them two of them were uh, trying to get sponsorship with Full Tilt at that time. Uh, and I sort of thought, well maybe this will be my last chance to kind of grab them before they get grabbed. Uh, and they were sort of saying, Well I, I don't really like the idea that you know, wearing some a load of people turning up at a thing in a uniform and being part of a team and all that. I don't really like that idea. <clears throat> and it's not cool enough. And Price is a very cool kid, and James is quite cool. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, actually, you need something kind of cool and aspirational. And I have a friend who's um, uh, kind of involved in Full Tilt from the start. In the, uh, she's friends with all of those people that started it up. And... Uh, I know a few of the people that were in full tilt from the ground when it first started. I can't give you your money back, but I, I, yeah, I 
hear a few people like that. Uh, and I was talking to them about Full Tilt and how it came about, and we agreed that the one thing that the new generation of poker players have that makes them different is that they have a background of coming from internet gaming, and uh, computer games are very much about, you know, kind of perseverance and you, you try and, you know, move up through the screens and you get a certain number of lives and then when you reach a certain level, it gives you, you know, there's a key to click on and then you get yeah. that and it opens up the key to a whole brave new world and, and if you screw it up and lose your lives, well, you just have to start the game again and uh, you work away until you manage to crack that game, basically. And poker's a little bit like that for a lot of young kids, I think. Uh, certainly a few years ago, this idea that you could just, um, you know, take shots, take shot, take shot, take shot, and then uh, how's he doing? Yeah, he took a shot at five pennies busto again. He's back to playing, you know, 10 cents, 20 cents. Uh, yeah. He's busto again, he's busto again. Uh, and just keep taking shots. And then, like, some that I knew had started taking shots at 25.50, and they always seem, that seems to be the point where everyone stops. So you got to 25.50, you'd always, they always went broke when they did 20. People are too good at 25.50, I think. And it, yeah. it, then occasionally one of them would break through and he'd be playing 200, 400. And I thought, well, they don't care. They don't really seem to mind if they go broke at 25.50 because they're learning and they're moving up the curve. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, actually, that's quite interesting because that, that's the thing. You need something where it's about aspiration. And, really, and that's what Full Tilt did really well. I mean, they, obviously, they did a lot of things really badly. Uh, but what they did really well, which has been killed because their brand is now ruined, uh, yeah. was build a brand that was based on aspiration. And they yeah. did it exactly right. At the start, you needed to have all the big names of poker, and that's why they had the big names of that time, Chris Ferguson and Howard Leather, and uh, obviously those people were involved in the starting up on the software and the business meetings yeah. and whatever, but, you know, getting Jennifer Harmon and Phil Gordon and people like that involved <coughs> was partly because of money, but it was partly because of those being the big names of the day. And then yeah. they realized that the really big name of the day that they needed was Phil Ivey, and as soon as they got Phil Ivey, they had a cool brand, and they had something that people wanted to aspire to. Ivy was playing on the site, and that was what it was all about. If you want to uh, be, uh, you know, uh, go and play against Ivy on full tilt, uh, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. You just if you sign up, and you, you can go and play against him, uh, and that's how it worked. But anyway, that that was kind of a thing. Um, that I liked about the way they did it. And then, obviously, over the time, next it was Patrick Antonius and Tom Dwan and different people coming in. And it was very aspirational. And I sort of thought, well, actually, that's quite interesting. People will go and play on that site for no other reason. You know, if I was just a, like a 10-cent, 20-cent player, I'd play on full tilt because I want to be Patrick Antonius or I want to be Durr, more likely, these mm-hmm. days, maybe. Um... And it doesn't really matter if I'm never, ever going to be dirt or play with him. If I'm hanging out on the site he hangs out on, that's quite a cool thing, and that's something I mm-hmm. want to do. And I was very aware that there were no cool brands in Europe. You know, obviously Full Tilt was in Europe, and PokerStars were in Europe, but most of the, the sites in Europe, they just weren't cool. Nobody, 
nobody ever kind of, you know, Labworks used to have a kind of a bit of a poker community that's kind of not really there anymore. PKR have sort of done it a little bit, but, you know, the software is a bit kind of clunky and it starts to kind of multi-table and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really kind of serious. Sky have got a kind of a bit of a community going, but it's very recreational. It's not very aspirational. The software used to be, like, ridiculously clunky and, you know, not mm-hmm. downloadable and stuff. So I sort of thought, well, there's a big gap to have some way that you can make a site kind of cool and I thought well I know lots of cool young kids in poker and I could get them involved and then people might want to start playing with them uh, and I'm playing on a site that they play on and that, that could work so that was mm-hmm. kind of my idea I thought about the staking idea I thought well, I can bring that into it I, I sort of like some of what go, was going on at full tilt in terms of having red name pro playing on your site. I definitely think that if someone wants to be sponsored to play poker by a poker site, they have to play on that poker site. That's just 100% free work to hear. I, I, I can't believe that people still write to me on a daily basis saying, I want to be back in tournaments, but I don't really want to play online. You know, <laughs> what world are they possibly living in where they think someone's just going to give them money to go and play the EPT? Uh, just yeah. to wear a badge, and you know, you know, that didn't even uh-huh. happen. You know, people say that used to happen five years ago. It didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. If you, even if you're, I don't know, Vicky Corrin or J.P. Kelly or, um, you know, Jason Mercier, you have to play 20 hours a month as an absolute minimum on PokerStars. Otherwise, they send you an email and say, what are you doing for your sponsorship? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. These are big companies. They're not just giving money away for no reason. A kid came up to me, uh, two weeks ago and said that he wanted to be a sponsored pro and he thought the main barrier at the moment was moving to London so that he could get noticed but he didn't play <laughs> online and I just thought well you've got a one big barrier is that you're, A you've never won anything and the second big barrier is B you haven't got any money and the third big barrier is you're not going to play online you know <laughs> like zero in a world where Jake Cody uh, Matt Perrin's Toby Lewis, yeah, James say. Mitchell don't have sponsorship deals. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's pretty tough. Uh, but I did think if I could present a roadmap to people where they could become a backed sponsored player and play in tournaments that they can't afford to play in right now, uh, uh-huh. that would be an interesting thing. You know, and it was kind of like a credit card company. Um, we give you stuff that you want right now that you can't afford at the moment. Uh, yeah. You know, your bankroll says you can't afford to play $10,000 worth of tournaments every month. Uh, well, if you play enough on our site and give us your regular, you know, action, then we'll put you in those tournaments. Now, some people turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, what about my rate back? Well, that's the choice you're going to have to make. Obviously, you can't have everything. Uh, if you want to be put in $10,000 uh, worth of tournaments uh, every month, there's a price to pay for that. And the price is uh, that, you know, we get your action and we, we can't afford to do that and give you rates back. We're doing something completely different. Uh, yeah. Uh, and we're rewarding people in a different way. Uh, our model is, um, you know, we get a bit slagged off sometimes because of that, because a lot of people are just, they, they can't see past, you know, there are 45 skins of iPoker, we're one of them. Uh, and 44 of them operate on some kind of uh, VIP points basis whereby you can cash points in for money. Uh, so effectively rate that or deposit bonuses, and that's the same way that most poker sites operate. We don't operate in that way. 
some people say to me, well, how would you expect anyone to play on your site you don't get rates back? And I said to them, what other sites do you play on? And the first one they say is PokerStars. So yeah. I say, and what percentage of rates back do you get from them? And they mm-hmm. go quiet because they obviously don't get any. Um, I don't think you can, you know, some people like think I'm a bit crazy. How can you run a focus site that doesn't give rates back? Uh, well, quite easily. We give a load of other things. Some people would rather have rates back, which is lucky for them because there are 44 other iFocus skins and hundreds of other skins on all the other crappy European networks uh, that you can go and get rates back from. And if that's what mm-hmm. you're after, well, good luck to you. Off you go. There's lots of places to go. If you want to come to a place where you can, at the lower levels, interact with some of the country's real up-and-coming young pros, uh, gain training, get free video training in the form of Deuces Crack memberships, uh, get um, the chance to get live training in the form of uh, training academies uh, or in the, tra- in the form of online uh, training sessions if you want someone to look at your online play and write a progress report for you and give you pointers for how to improve. Uh, if you want to um, uh, come along to uh, training sessions in London and learn from people like me, uh, if you want to get sponsored to play in live tournaments, well, that's what we do. I mean, it's not for everyone. A lot of people would say, well, I don't really fancy any of that. Well, that's fine. You know, we're a slightly niche thing, and it's not its not for everyone. But, I, I've, you know, I think we've done a good job of building something different, and yeah. I hope it works out. And in terms of, like, how much you have to play, uh, we get a bit misrepresented, I find. Um, I'm always hearing people say, well, all he does is basically make you rake the amount of money that he then gives you back to play. Uh, that's not actually really how it works. If you're a blue belt, which is the first level, uh, where you can get any sponsorship, you uh, you get $1,500 a month from sponsorship. Um, mm-hmm. The average blue belt on our site has to rate roughly 1700 It's slightly awkward to say exactly how much because uh, we have a thing called prize points. If, you, if you're if you a blue belt and I'd put you in a tournament uh, which costs, I don't know, say £500 to enter, uh, mm-hmm. and you win that tournament, and maybe the first prize is uh, sixty grand. Uh, we give you prize points for each dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. And those prize points would be enough for you to get promoted uh, as high as Brown Belt. So uh, we would take 50% of your prize because it's, uh, we're, splitting, we're putting you in on a 50-50 basis. Uh, so mm-hmm. you get 30 and we get 30. Uh, but you may end up getting seven or eight months of more sponsorship without having to play at all on the site. Uh, yeah. because of the price point. So um, effectively, you know, when we take our share, we reinvest it in you. Uh, when Sam Razavi came six in the Aussie Millions as a brown belt, mm-hmm. he got promoted to black belt for seven months. So he, mm-hmm. we, we got $120,000 out, uh, out of his share. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was our share of, uh, for putting him in. Uh, but we committed, because we made him black belt because of his price points, he, get, he gets seven months at Black Milk, $70,000 of the sponsorship. So, you know, straight away, we're reinvesting yeah. in that player. So, you know, I, I, it, it is hard to quantify exactly what that's worth in terms of money. Um, mm-hmm. I'm quite happy with that because, I, I, you know, I think the car insurance market, uh, the aircraft, uh, you know, airline flights market, 
uh, have all been ruined by uh, comparison websites and, and people just going online and saying, okay, that one's a penny cheaper, so I'll book with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't want to compete on that way. We want to do something that's different. You can't really compare it. If you say to me, I get 50% rate back, that's better. It's not better, it's just different. Uh, yeah. I would say our model, you know, at the black dot level is a deal that costs us money. Uh, we want to have people at black dot because that gives other people climbing up the ladder something to aim at and shoot for. Uh, and we, you know, we need to have that. But yeah. in terms of how we do out of the black books, unless we're really lucky in how they do in the tournaments, it's going to cost us money. Luckily, we've mm -hmm. been quite lucky so far. We've, you know, we've had good people, but uh, you know, we, we and hopefully we will build good people. We'll build a good team, and they they work together and they learn. And I think what I've learned, you know, like in poker terms, uh, from just hanging out with these guys, they, they I, I think I'm a massive believer in. Uh, poker players getting together and talking and improving their game and I think uh, uh, you know like a lot of the young guys that I was talking about before Toby and uh, Jake and, and uh, James and Matt and various other people uh, because they hang out together and they hit squad you know they, they stay together and uh, you know they talk about hands and whatever and they're going to improve and it makes a big difference I think that's uh, you know, in terms of Blackboard, that's one of the things I'm proudest about, that we've built a site which is a community and provides an environment where people can hang out and discuss poker together and become better yeah. players. I well, I was going to yeah, well, I was going to, when I, we mentioned at the start of this uh, podcast that I played the deposit, you know, the free roll, the 5k mm. free roll, and it was like you, Nick Persad, uh, you know, on the final table, and it was just, you know, it was a good feel, and guys like yourself, um, you know, you speak about eyes and that, but when people from the UK see that, and when I've been on Black Belt, Black Belt there's lots of, you know, uh, blogs and things like that, and like when you talk about aspirational, if you're sitting grinding cash all day, then, you know, at the end of the month, it's a, it's a good thing. If you're going to get, what you mentioned there, rate back to get put in for $1,500, I mean, you're not going to be quoted, but you said roughly about 1700 I mean, that seems a pretty good deal to me, 1500 tournament entries for that, because... You're only going to get thirty percent, thirty-five percent rate back, you know, of that seventeen anyway. If you did play on another site, so suppose for like cash players, it does, you know, it's something to aim for. If you're grinding cash all month and then once a month you can sort of be, you know, you get a trip away to a tournament or that and take a shot at a tournament, then yeah, I think I think it's a I think yeah, it's a I mean, great it, idea. It does basically how it's supposed to work. I mean, the, I, I I'm very much of the opinion that if someone can beat online cash games that's the person I'd like to gamble on in tournaments. And we are gambling on them. If, if a guy has to rake 17 or 1800 in a month and we have to give him 1500 clearly we're not making any profit if he just yeah. does rubbish in all the tournaments forever more. Um, yeah. Obviously, if he does well in the tournaments and we get half of his winnings, well, now we're, we're doing all right out of the deal. Uh, but, you know, that, that's a bit of an if. Uh, but I, I'd much rather gamble on someone that I can see that they can do okay in the cash games and they can win in the cash games. If, if you ask me to gamble on people on the basis of their past tournaments, uh, I would say that was a very bad business model and uh, mm -hmm. we'd probably do our money because if you wrote a list of everyone that won a tournament in the UK four years ago, three years ago, two years ago, most of those people are not winning poker players now. Uh, yeah. It's all about variance, you know. They're, they're, mm -hmm. 
most of the people that won the EPT this year just ran really well. I probably won the Irish Open because I just ran really well. Uh, it doesn't prove I'm a winning tournament player. I think I'm just about a winning tournament player, but we'll probably never find out. I'm not going to live that long. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% certain I'm a winning cash player because, uh, you know, you can't just run good for 20 years, but you can run good uh-huh. for 10 years in tournaments quite easily. Yeah. Well, Neil, um, I think that's been more than enough of your time, mate. I think. Well, we're I'm very happy to do it. I'm, I'm sorry if I rabbit it on a lot. I've probably done the world record length uh, one hour for podcast. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian Rast was the previous holder at one hour thirty, I think. So this has been smashed by at least forty minutes. One yeah, side. No one's going to do this. So it says on my phone it's ninety-eight minutes, and yesterday was over an hour. So I've, yeah, I'll, nobody's going to beat that I'm trying to get Phil Lack on. Brian uh, Rast emailed him for me and copied me into the email saying, uh, get in touch with Bart, you know, podcast, he'd like to have you on and stuff. But he seems quite an elusive guy with his email and stuff. Uh, he's, so... he's, he can be a bit elusive. I guess while he was promoting his, his website, it was better, but the, the website's kind of gone now. So it was a cake for yeah. skin. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's probably, people, when they've got something to sell, they want to do stuff like this more. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Neil. All right, well, good uh, to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, don't forget, guys, sign up to blackbeltpoker.com. All right, Neil, that's great. Okay, no problem. Nice to talk to you.